0: Greetings, ladies and mental gents, and welcome to this batch video for the web novel, Out of Space, taken from the website Royal Road. I hope that you enjoy, and if you do, please consider supporting the channel. Chapter 161 Regrets Sawtooth Mountain Air Base, Hangar 4 Captain Blake stood silently inside the darkened hangar by himself. He stared at the dozen wooden caskets laid perfectly in rows, each covered with a red, blue, and white striped flag trimmed with edges. Eleven dead marines, one or One member, laid peacefully in each coffin. Soft footsteps echoed and Blake released a breath as he was holding and turned, seeing Princess Shireen dressed in black coat over a dark blue dress robe. She reached out a hand towards Blake who gave a small, grim smile and took her warm hands into his palm. ''I'm sorry,'' Blake whispered. ''Your people died under my command.'' ''No, they are standing at the gates of heaven now,'' Shireen gave a smile back and a sad expression on Blake's face. ''They fought to protect and defend us from the evil of this world.'' ''It is never easy when you lose men,'' Blake replied, as he turned and looked at the cold, silent coffins. ''I had lost a lot more men over the years.'' Shireen silently stood beside Blake and he kept vigil over the coffins shyly reaching out and slipping her arm around Blake's waist, giving him mental support. I lost my friends and families during an invasion with bugs. Blake continued, seemingly unaware of Shireen's arm hugging him. I lost two-thirds of my crew when my ship was boarded and fighting the bugs over the gravity wall of Mechatol Rex. I stayed behind and set my ship to self-destruct while buying as much time for the crew to escape. I lost my leg then. Blake looked up at the ceiling of the hangar. You should have seen the battle. Dozens and dozens of Titan-class battleships, Zeus-class battlecruisers, and Ares-class battlecruiser, Hera-class battlecruisers, and Aegis-class destroyers. A mighty fleet of over two hundred of the finest ships and brave souls of man gathered before the swarm's forward planets, which they used to launch attacks into human space. Blake rumbled on, his eyes unfocused as he recalled the fleet action. I was the captain of an Aegis-class destroyer, the Guardian. My ship was part of the fourth carrier group, escorting a Zeus-class battlecruiser, Endurance with my other Shuster ships. Blake seemed to sink into himself as he gripped his prosthetic leg. Shireen watched him pour out his past quietly, not fully understanding the words he spoke. Space was lit up by hundreds and hundreds of rail cannons, missiles, energy beams, plasma spalls, and bug spalls. Blake turned to look seriously at Shireen, his eyes haunted from the past. I and my sister ships fought their best, shooting down the spores before they could reach the carrier endurance, but a sudden appearance of a parasite mother, carefully hidden away in the void of space, dropped over twenty swarm parasite cruisers and they swarmed the fourth. I was an action worthy of history books, Blake smiled. Twelve destroyers, five escort cruisers, and one carrier against twenty parasite cruisers, and one parasite mothership. We killed them as they neared, our guns peeling off the bio-armour and reaching deep into their guts, spilling their lifeblood out. But we fared no worse than them, as thousands and thousands of bug spores rained on us. We fought as hard as we could till the barrels of the guns melted and the endurance was targeted primarily by the bugs. Blake whispered, Guardian ran out of missiles and railgun ammo. Most of the point defense turrets melted and there was a single huge wave of spores about to hit the carrier. And on board the carrier, a number of lives on board were over 7,000 men and women. Blake closed his eyes. I made the decision to position my ship in the path of the spores to save the endurance. And that decision caused the death of over a hundred men and women. Blake gave a small smile as Shireen wiped a tear off his eye. And I fell into depression later, but was given another chance. The Singapore High Command couldn't let a war hero go to waste, even doth he mentally unwell. So I was to be chaperone for kids, teaching them how to go and die. And die they did. I lost another 370 men and women against the swarm. Blake lowered his head. I couldn't save them, and most of them were just kids fresh out of school. And we landed here, and there were more deaths, Blake whispered. Everywhere I go, there are deaths. We are at war, and war, there are deaths. I'm tired of seeing my people die. Blake buried his head into Shireen's shoulder. Too many deaths, and I can't show any weakness to my crew. I know, I know, Shireen patted Blake gently as she continued to hug him. Not all choices we make will lead to the results we want, We can only pray for those that passed on that they have left to a better place. Don't worry, you can always find me, Shireen lifted Blake's head and smiled. I will also be there for you. Blake gazed deep into the mesmerizing blue eyes of Shireen, and he felt better after pouring out his sadness that he had kept away locked in his heart. Shireen blushed as she stared back at Blake, and for some reason he leaned forward slowly and her plump rosy lips widened slightly. Blake gave a smile back and held on to Shireen and kissed her gently on the lips and who melted into his arms as she kissed him back fiercely. Human Colony, General Hospital Dr. Sharon stripped away her body surgical gloves and dumped them into the biohazard bin before turning the tap on the sink and started scrubbing her hands with soap. She looked up at the tiny mirror, a gaunt-looking face looking back. Dark eyebags covered her eyes and her eyes were bloodshot, her cheeks were sunken in and she had a very pale complexion. She splashed water over her face, the cold water shocking her system, making her feel slightly refreshed. I need sleep. Damn, sir. Dr. Sharon sighed as she heard the voice in her head. The damn voices were keeping her awake all night lately, and she was at an operating theatre saving lives, as a vulgari medivac in the wounded. She exited the washroom and headed towards the intensive care unit and started with the health monitoring systems. The newly constructed hospital had most of the bare minimum equipment for healthcare and medical emergencies, with a massive helipad on the roof. It had bed capacity for up to 200 patients and four operating theatres. Dr. Sharon had spent most of her time teaching and the education of trainee nurses and doctors of modern medical care. She also incorporated magic for healing and would mostly use magic to help recover wounds as it was much more cost-effective. Most of the ship's medical equipment had made their way over to the hospital while leaving behind one set for emergencies on board the ship. She nodded to a couple of trainee nurses who gave a short bow to her before they scurried off to wherever they were supposed to be. After she was satisfied with the health monitoring systems, she wandered off to her office Dr. Sharon dropped onto a sofa in her room. She appropriated the sofa from the recreational room from the ship and using her authority, and now she flopped on it, closing her eyes as she worked over seven hours non-stop saving lives. She drifted away into a dreamless sleep, as soon as her exhausted body hit the sofa. L'Ore et The Colony City The groups of citizens sifted through the concrete rubble as they looked for survivors and personal possessions. The city had suffered two major quakes from the firing of the railgun, and the rescue workers and police officers worked all night to help provide first aid to the wounded and rescue people trapped in piles of rubble. There had been a few deaths caused by falling debris and ruptured organs. Most of those wounded and died did not take shelter or ignore the warnings given by the public broadcast system, and they paid with their lives. yells and shouts echoed through the city as everyone was out in the streets. Several orcs were even sighted as they lifted up heavy concrete slabs that broke off from the buildings caused by the quakes. There was fear and despair in the air, yet also a strong community bond, as strangers and neighbors helped each other out during the crisis, ignoring each other's race or beliefs. UNS Singapore, Captain's Office Blake sat on his chair as he mindlessly turned the item sealed in the plastic bag in his hand that was retrieved from the hero's body. "'So this came from the hero?' Commander Ford nodded. "'We did all kinds of checks on it, even carbon dating.' "'And the result?' Blake placed the artifact on the table. "'We do not know what it is made of,' Ford answered. "'It blocks X-ray scans, and carbon dating roughly tells us that this thing is roughly four hundred years old.' I noted that the carbon dating is not as accurate due to its exposure. But we estimate that it could be up to six to seven hundred years old, Ford continued. There are minute traces of mu radiation given off constantly from its surface. Magister Thorne's conjecture is that this might be from the age of gods, and that Dante had found it somehow, and that it is how he got his divine powers. Ford finished his report. So is it safe to touch? Blake asked. Can anyone just use it and gain powers like Dante? Yes, and uh, maybe, Ward replied. To gain powers like Dante, Master Thorne says that you need to be chosen or acknowledged by the god. We also have no idea what the side effects of having such power, Vord added. I don't really want another crazed hero rampaging around. Dr. Sharon's thoughts, Blake asked, she'll be able to figure out something. I did not disturb her for this, Ford said. She was busy in the hospital till this morning, and I'm letting her sleep first. Blake nodded. Have the families of the deceased marines arrived? Yes, sir, Ford sighed. The funeral will be set for next week. Blake leaned back and asked, Do you think I made the right choice? You mean the main guns? Ford asked back with Blake giving a confirmation nod. Yes, Ford replied simply. Sometimes we need to sacrifice something for the greater good. But the price is worth it in the end, Blake asked. Ford nodded. Yes. If not, the hero would have killed everyone and marched in here afterwards. I thought you disagreed, Blake asked again. The main guns are too overpowered to be really suitable for atmospheric firing. I did, Ford replied. It is my job to tell you the pros and cons, and the final decision is yours to make. And seeing as how the hero could actually still be alive after taking a 155mm above projectile, I believe that you made the right choice in the end. We have the deaths and wounded in the city due to firing the gun, Ford added, but in the end, I think it was needed. If not, the death toll caused by the hero would have been much higher. I see, sighed. Please provide all support to the civilian population and also make sure the rest of the marines and slaves make it home. Also, we probably need to construct a bomb shelters for civilian population in the upcoming months. Yes, Captain. End of chapter Chapter 162 Sunblock Goblin Sea A huge wave crested over the bow of the flagship Fury, as two-meter-tall waves rose up and down. The dark skies lit up with a bolt of lightning flashing across the skies, like an erratic serpent crawling in the skies. Thunder rumbled and sheets of rain hammered the Isle's ships as they weathered the storm, Fleetmaster Jon roared with laughter as the rain and seawater drenched him. He held up on the ship's steering wheel with both hands, and his feet spread wide in a perfect balance as fury crashed into the waves and rose up and down. The crew huddled against the mast and whatever shelter they could find, praying that the storm would end soon. Fleetmaster, we can't see the rest of the fleet! His first mate yelled from his post on top of the poop deck. Don't worry about the rest. Once the storm passes, we'll be able to regroup. The John roared over the storm. I trained the men myself. They know how to handle their ships. The John peered out into the dark, stormy night, trying to see ahead. Navigator, what's our heading? Holding firm three points top the star. The oilskin clad navigator yelled next to him as he studied the lodestone in the bowl, being careful not to lose the lodestone in the storm. Great! What great weather! The John laughed wildly. His muscles bulged, gripping the ship's wheel tightly, making sure that his ship stayed of course. It was hours later when the storm ebbed and the seas returned to normal. The sun had risen up a couple hours, and the skies barely had a cloud in the clear blue skies. The crew of the Fury were drained, and barely had any rest. Most of them had laid down and rested on the decks. Ahoy! Sails! A boy in the crow's nest yelled from the top of the main mast. He pointed at the rear where some white spots could be seen along the horizon. The john pulled out his collapsible farseer, the telescope made of the finest glass masters on the isles. He counted several white square sails in the distance and gave an order. Trim the sails, bring us about. His first mate nodded and roared at the crew laying around on the decks. Trim the sails, you lazy dogs! And the crew jumped into action professionally. John folded his thick, muscular arms and watched the crew work. Despite their laid-back manner, his men were fiercely loyal to him. He smiled, turning to the navigator who was spinning the wheel with bringing the ship around towards the sighted sails. The missing ships of the fleet soon joined up, and jolly boats were launched from the ships as the captains gathered at the Fury. Each captain dressed different. Some were wearing a tricone hat with colored blouses and pants, Others were bareheaded and had dressed more formally, but all wear a white jacket with gold braids and trimmings, which identified their ranks. They all gathered on the flagship captain's quarters, where John sat before a long table. His bed had been cleared away, leaving enough space for nine captains to settle on the chairs brought in by the crew. As they settled down, crew members doubling as stewards started serving breakfast. Fresh eggs, hard boiled with cold bread, smoked ham and fish, and a wheel of hard cheese, jugs of honey and dried fruits were quickly spread out on the table. Jugs of watered down wine were also placed on the table for the captains, who quickly filled their mugs and gave a toast to the fleet master, De John. Everyone made it? De John asked as he scanned the captains. We're missing Iron Walls, captain, someone spoke. We did not see any signs of his ship since the storm. De John nodded. Keep a lookout for his ship later. Damage to your ships. The captains gave a quick report of their damage and progress of repairs, With the most serious was the loss of a mast while they dug into some food. De John nodded as he chewed on a hard boiled egg, listening to his captain's reports. Good. We hold for repairs for Striker. Once the repairs of the mast are done, we'll set sail again. My navigator tells me that we're roughly two days sail away from the Rebels Harbour. John said with his mouth full. We are here to show off our might and show these rebels the power of our fleet. This will be a diplomacy meeting. I want no one to misbehave at the rebels' harbor. The captain looked at each other and had said that it could be seen in the eyes. It's more like you, the fleet master, to start a brawl in drinking halls and pubs. But they all kept quiet and nodded. Good, John grinned. Now we're also to pick up some slaves for transportation back and also see if we can make some business deal with the rebels at the same time. The Empire most likely will defeat them sooner or later, the John added, so squeeze as much gold out of their pockets before they end up in the hands of the Empire. For gold, the captains laugh, raising their mugs and goblets hide. Gold! Goblin Coast Far Harbor the rumble of the heavy machinery roared past petty officer Letts and the heavy tractor powered by a nine-cylinder engine pulling a trailer loaded with massive prefabricated reinforced concrete blocks kicked up a massive dust cloud in its wake. Letts coughed and waved the dust away, quickly crossing buzzy dirt path, with another tractor laddened with more prefabricated blocks roared up. He quickly entered the small office next to the busy construction site and shut the door, barely muting the sound of the noises outside. "'Phew! It's hot!' He removed his white safety helmet and hung it over a peg on the door and settled down at his desk, where his simple rotary fan blew with warm air. "'Of course it's hot!' A soft, feminine voice replied to him. "'It's almost the start of summer.' "'Yes, yes, I know. Let's start it to unroll the sheets of architectural drawings on his desk. At least the rain will stop and the ground will be easier for the construction crews to work on. "'Yes, the storm last night was quite bad.' The silver-haired elf walked over to Letz's desk. Last spring storm of the season. Yep. So, Irishwal, how was your civil engineering course? Letz asked as he used a couple of rocks as paperweights, placing them on the ends of the technical draft. It was, um, educating, Hirschwell smiled. I didn't know that there was so much to consider in construction and buildings. Well, good for you. Come here and take a look. Letts absentmindedly gestured her over. Look here. This is the pier section which we have completed construction. Now here will be the dry docks and the port for major ships to come in to load and unload cargo. Erishval glanced through the design drawings and nodded. Now the seabed here is mostly sand and sediment, us continued, but this area has no good natural deep harbour for deep hulled ships. We need your expertise to harden the terrain so that we can construct a port out towards the steep sea. Irishval nodded as she rotated the drawing and took a note of the location. I need to go take a look and feel the area first. Okay. By the way, the ships of the Mysterious Isles will be arriving by tomorrow. Let's her. There's going to be a big welcoming reception at the pier for them. If you're free, go and join in on the fun. Irishval nodded and rolled up the blueprint drawing. Got it, boss, she said and exited the small office. As she stepped out of the shade of the office, the hot sun blasted onto her, making her narrow her eyes and slowly adjusted to the bright sunlight. She was worn a simple white blouse with pockets and a pair of khaki shorts displaying her long legs and combat boots with a tool belt over a slim waist where she kept measuring tools and stones. Shorts were like all the older fashion rage now in the city due to the changing weather. She thought to herself and grinned, wondering how the people from the Isles would react when they saw girls here all dressed up in short blouses and scandalous shorts. Wearing her white helmet, she hopped across another rumbling tractor carrying more construction material and headed towards the port area, where a white, painted two-meter-tall wooden wall fenced off the construction site. Slogans and warning signs were nailed up against the wooden wall, and strips of yellow and black markings lined the edges. She reached the gate where the three security guards in black armor and equipped with swords and revolvers guarded the entrance. They stopped her as she neared the gate, and she displayed her pass, which they carefully compared to the picture on her pass with her face before nodding and allowing her entry. She stepped past the guard post and entered the still under construction port, skipping over the waterholes with a roll of drawings under her arm. Dozens of workers with yellow helmets were toiling under the sun, There were even a couple of orcs carrying I-shaped steel beams, and they stacked onto other beams, and teams of workers started welding the beams together. She skipped past the dry docks and headed straight to the fenced-off area by the beach and stood before the sea. She noted the beach had been paved over with concrete, and she had right at the edge of the concrete platform and removed her boots before she climbed down into the water. The surging waves pushed against her feet as the cooling sea water reached her lower thighs. Irishval felt the loose sand underneath her feet and admired the beautiful, crystal-clear waters. Closing her eyes, she channeled her magical sense into the sand underneath her, probing the terrain with her powers. It was almost an hour before she suddenly opened her eyes and gasped for air as she used almost two-thirds of her power. She grimaced as she realized she got sunburnt, Her smooth, white skin had turned red from standing in the sun and she wondered if the humans have any medication for sunburn. If not, she'll have to find a healer to cause some healing spell on her skin. Climbing back up the concrete platform, she spread out the roll of paper out and started to jot down notes, highlighting areas where the terrain was soft or firm and where the reinforcements were required. Finally done, she felt like she was baked under the sun and she quickly returned to the back to the shaded office. Here. She dumped a roll of drawings onto Letts' table and turned the fan to blow on her, taking a bottle of lukewarm water from her desk to drink. Phew. It's hot. I'm cooked. Letts looked up from the paperwork and saw irishwall looking like a boiled lobster and laughed. Didn't you apply sunblock? Sun-bob. Erishval raised her pretty eyebrows in question. Sun-block, not bob or board. Letts laughed out. He dug into his drawers and removed a bottle of sunblock lotion. Damn girl, your skin is going to peel off at this rate. You better go find Doc, pour some sunscreen, or you're going to regret it tomorrow. Here, catch. He tossed a bottle of lotion to Irishval, who caught it and stared in confusion at the English wording. You actually need to apply it over your exposed skin before you go into the sun. Keep it. Let's glance through the notes written on the drawing while Irishval read the instructions on the bottle. Wait, this blocks the sun? Mm, yeah, Letts replied without looking up. That's why it's called Sunblock. Why didn't you give this to me earlier? Yerishwell cried as she glared at Letts. You didn't ask, he came back with a reply. Ugh, men. End of chapter. Chapter 163 Holidays and Festivals Sawtooth Mountain Holding Camp Kaga Whitetail yawned and stretched her body out in a very cat like manner on the simple bed that she was lying on. It was just a simple metal frame with a piece of cloth stretched over it. The idea was ingenious to Kaga. In fact, ever since they arrived at this place, she was amazed at the constantly surprised by many things. After the fiasco with the hero, Kagar and the rest of the slaves escorted by the strangely dressed barbarians, which she later found out were mostly from the kingdom of Goldrose, which the empire had labelled them as rebels, travelled a couple of days before encountering a caravan of dragon wagons, which was hired by the rebels to transport the tired slaves to safety. The caravan foreman, a named Norman, seemed to have come from the same employer who bought and freed them, He appeared to be afraid of something as he kept twitching in fear throughout the journey until they reached the impressive stone castle, built into the very surface of the mountains, where he adamantly refused to enter, staying outside of the castle and leaving as soon as the slaves were dropped off, and even refusing an escort through the uncharted forest. They rested half a day before setting off again this time riding strange mechanical contraptions that appeared to run on magic without the use of any dragons. The speed with which they travelled boggled Kagar's mind as the scenery outside the glass windows appeared to vanish as rapidly as it appeared. They were then told to exit the magic wagons and a small army of white-coated and similarly white-costume healers fussed over them before they were taken to a place for a shower and a fresh clothing were given to them after which they were fed. Once they were all settled they were separated into males and females, and given a large tent with which they shared with four persons each. Kaga remembered the healers were saying something about diseases and viruses, and man-u-tri-chon amongst the survivors, and they were needed to be quarantine. She slipped on a pair of slippers that she was told were actually made out of slime parts. The sole came from the body of the black slime, found in the swamps up north. The slime was gutted, of its guts removed, and before the body was then machine-pressed into the shape of a sole and then sun-dried. A simple, soft-woven strap made of grass was secured to the sole. The slippers felt soft and comforting to her feet as she exited the tent, and headed towards the canteen for food. She noted some of the womenfolk were washing their clothes and washing areas where water gushed from the taps which she was only seen either nobles, royalty, or filthy rich mansions. Finding her way into the cook tents, she smelt a strong aroma of herbs, spices, and meat. Gagar grabbed a tray from the side and joined the queue where the cook was giving out food. As the term came, she gave a most charming smile at the young man, who brushed and handed her a slightly larger portion. Today's menu was scrambled eggs with ham and two slices of white bread, and slices of red, sweet, and tart fruit full with what they called tomato. Finding an empty seat, she sat down and wolfed down the food. Ever since coming here, she felt as if she was gaining weight that she'd lost over the past few months. The food was just too good and exotic. Like the burgle that she had the other day. Two toasted bread buns with a juicy chunk of meat with cheese and more of that red tart fruit. It tasted heavenly and Kagar was looking forward to what they had for lunch today. She was finishing her meal as she overheard a group of people who came together with her in the camp, discussing about what they were going to do next. This all seems too good to be true, one of them came and was heard saying in a low voice. But they fought and protected us from the Empire, another says and also in a low voice. Kagar was hearing was sharp enough and heard the conversation. "'Yes, but look here. They are all keeping us like prisoners,' the earlier male spoke, his eyes glancing over to the couple of guards at the end of the tent. "'We are like slaves still to these people.' The ears twitched as she held her anger, her food forgotten. "'Did they know how much they sacrificed to save them?' "'I heard that they will be asking us who wants to stay and who wants to leave to go to the isles,' another person whispered. "'I overheard some of the strangely dressed healers talking.' "'Are you sure?' another asked. "'Would they be selling us off instead?' "'I just find it all too good to be true,' the original speaker insisted. Kagah discreetly observed the speaker, who had a sunken yellowish face and dark silvery hair and a thin body frame, most likely from being starved over a long period of time. He glanced furtively around and gestured his group closer to whisper even softer, making Kaga strain her fluffy ears as she leaned closer to listen." while pretending to eat her breakfast. We should make a run for it. But how? The camp is surrounded by those strange wire fences and there uh, are gods, someone hissed. You want to overpower the gods. Shh, lower your volume. The yellow-faced elf sharply whispered. You want everyone to know. No way, another person said. I'm out of this. This is way too much for me. A few others also disagreed as they picked up their trays and left. Cowards! The yellow-faced elf spat. Ignore them. They can be slaves for all of their lives. But where can we go? Those that remained asked. Simple. We know they're going to ship us off. The elf gave a nasty grin. We just steal that ship. UNS Singapore Main Conference Room. So what do we know of the Isles? Captain Blake asked. Everyone gathered in the room. Virtually nothing, except information from the merchants who dealt with them in the past. Lieutenant Tavar of the fleet in Tau replied, "'What we have is only second-hand information, which can't be verified. But we do know that they are a strong naval force in the sea, on par with the goblins at least,' he said next. "'Also, what we know is that they have a very strong presence in the finance world, most likely controlling at least 50% or more of the trade within the sphere of influence.'" It should be comparable to the old Earth Britain, an island nation, which its navy has its strongest military power and relying mainly on trade. Tavon pointed a map highlighting the area which the isles were reported to be located. The map given to us by Goldrose is over a hundred years old and unupdated, so this may be taken with a gauge. UAV recon flights have already spotted a large sailing fleet heading our way. Davar switched to the view of the screen to display the top-down view of the ten ships with white sails in an inverted V formation. Those look similar to our old sailing frigates to brigs. Chief Matt spoke up as he looked at the image. Just no cannons. Tevar nodded, yes. From the images, we managed to identify their main ship to ship weapons are mostly ballistas or catapults. Crew strength of smaller, brig-like ships are calculated around 200, while the larger frigate types are around 350. Also, we found that they appear to have lost one ship after the storm the night before. At the rate of speed, they will arrive in another day or two. Tavar finished his report and sat down. Thank you, Blake said. All right, Far Harbor has informed me that the pier is ready to welcome our guests, so we will be sending some representatives down. We will also be isolating the visitors to only the area around Far Harbor. I don't want them to know our capabilities— All construction work and equipment will be pulled out and the workers will be given a holiday. I want security to be on full alert too, Blake added. And also, if possible, Princess, I will leave the negotiation to trade deals under your care. Princess Shireen shyly nodded and blushed, keeping her eyes down on the notepad in front of her. Blake grinned and turned to Dr. Sharon. How are the newcomers? We have settled them down and done a full medical and health check, Dr. Sharon replied. So far, blood works on viruses and diseases come back negative, but I would still like to keep them in quarantine for a couple more days, just to be sure. Got it, Blake nodded. Major, how are your men doing? Morale is pretty high, despite the memorial service the day before, Major Frank replied. In fact, the men of Eagle Company are calling themselves God Slayer and are recovering well. Blake gave a weak smile, remembering the tears of the families that they watched the coffins enter the ground. Princess, how is the civilian population doing? Shireen jerked up as if she'd woke up. Um, um, so far repairs are still ongoing, she replied in a fluster, her face turning red. City Hall has run a few public broadcasts on the radio explaining the situation, and we managed to appease the population. And with compensation given to the families that were affected, and with the amount of support given by the government, so far there weren't many complaints. Uh, also... I'd like to propose something. Shireen looked at Blake. It's almost summer and soon it'll be harvest time. I'd like to propose we have a summer harvest festival for the people. A summer harvest festival, Blake turned and glanced at Ford, who shrugged. Is there any cultural background to it? Shireen nodded. Traditionally, during midsummer, after the time of the harvest, everyone gathers to give thanks to the God of Harvesting for providing food to the people. And I think that we need something like this. It'll help boost the morale of the citizens. Well, I think it's a good idea, Ford spoke up. We did miss out on celebrating Christmas, New Year, and other festivals. Yeah, the rest of the meeting and room nodded and voiced their approval at the idea of having festivals and holidays. Holidays! All right, all right, relax, people. Blake nodded and gestured for everyone to calm down. Plan the date, budget, and manpower needed. City Hall will handle all forms of festivals and holidays, okay? Shireen nodded eagerly and gave a small smile to Blake, who gave a cough and turned to look at the rest. Now in regards to the hero incident, you'll need an SOP in dealing with entities like these. We can't keep firing the main guns unless its situation threatens the whole of the colony. The main gun isn't a weapon for atmospheric usage. It is overpowered, in fact. But, Captain, 20 millimeter cannons and rockets barely deal any damage to the hero. Major Frank pointed out, We can't fight something like that on a par. I know. So either we upgrade our weapons or we have someone with similar powers, Blake replied. All black powder weapons will be turned in and returned to the factories to be modified for the new smokeless propellant ammunition. This will improve your firepower sufficiently at least. And so far, the only force I know managed to fight off the hero almost to a par is Claymore One using black powder weapons. Rick continued. Therefore, I want you, Major, to scout out for more talent amongst the Marines to join the ranks of the 101st. We need more than one team of Claymores. Sometimes if guns don't work, we need to use magic. And if that doesn't work either, we use guns and magic. End of chapter. Chapter 164 FRIENDS FROM AFAR Goblin Ghost Ahoy! I see something ahead! The boy yelled down from the crow's nest, his hands forming a rectangular shape with his fingers as the air around them magically enhanced, giving the boy a blurry but zoomed-in view of the coast. A tall, whitish stone structure loomed up from the long stretch of what appeared to be a pier or a harbour of sorts. Waves crashed against the stone surface and figures could be seen moving around. Fleetmaster John frowned as he noted the length of the stone pier, like a bridge into the sea with a round tower that he wondered if it works the same function as the firelight towers back in the isles. Sound the horns and raise the flags, John ordered from his first mate. Tell the rest of the ships to form up in a tight formation. He did not expect the rebels to have such an awe-looking structure, and it would be more impressive as they neared. His suspicions were true when his fleet came within eye distance, and he gauged the pier to be at least ten times the length of his ship, from land to sea, with the width of the stone bridge to be at least as long as the ship was the beam to aft. Such an impressive engineering feat, they must have a very powerful geomancer to mould and rise stones to make something like this. He also knew that the last time any Isle ships had passed this area, it did not report any signs of construction, and it was just before the winter season. So that meant that the rebels had magically raised this in, what, two seasons? How much did they sacrifice to make something like this? Or were the rumors true that they sold their souls to the demons for power? Signal the rest of the ships, Dijon narrowed his eyes in thought, with the red and yellow flag. The boy in charge of raising the signal flags bowed, and the horns looked startled at the border and hesitated but with a glare from Dijon, he quickly scrambled off to the main mast and started pulling colored flags out from the locker and attached the signal lines and hoisted it up for the rest of the fleet to see. The other ship's captains, seeing the colored flags, frowned and their expressions turned serious. Order the crew to make ready for combat, stay on the highest alert and be ready for an attack. The red flag meant make ready for possible battle, while the yellow flag meant stay alert for an attack. The ship's crews unlocked the weapons lockers, removed barrels of cutlasses soaked in oil of the fruit of the cocoa cane, and crossbows while gunners ready at the ballistas and catapults. The ships closed in formation, expertly forming up into two rows as they sailed towards the stone pier while making ready for battle. Goblin Coast, Far Harbor, Pier 1 Princess Shireen was dressed in a simple cream-colored short-sleeved long dress that reached till her ankles tied with a golden ribbon around her slim waist, which she found that she appeared to have been gaining weight and making her slightly depressed as she thought of all the tasty foods that she had had over the month. She wore a simple woven straw hat that provided some shade from the summer sun and had a pair of shades given to her by Blake and also a cream that Dr. Sharon insisted that she apply to her skin, saying that if she does not want to look like a cooked spider ant, she better apply it. The white, washed concrete pier rose up several meters above the ocean waves, barely sending any sea spray in the broad expanse of the pier. She noted that it could easily park over a dozen jeeps without any issues, while still leaving space for people to walk. The ships of the pier waist-high pillars spaced out evenly along the edge, where simple ropes were tied to rings embedded into the pillars, creating a fence-like effect most likely were to prevent people from walking over the edge and into the sea, Shireen thought to herself. She held onto her fluttering dress tightly as the breeze blew strongly and glanced out towards the clear sea, where she saw two lines of sailing ships with their white sails coming in towards the pier. She glanced around, making sure everything was in order and welcoming band, something she picked up from the humans to the colorful banners of red tide from small pillars, making the whole area look festive. Dozens of police, security, and even a platoon of marines stood at the posts while guests invited over by the city hall had selected workers from the harbour construction and harbour staff, crowded behind the guards as they chatted in the sun and the sea breeze, waiting for the ships to arrive in excitement. Were the freed slaves as they escorted through the uncharted forest? All of them were invited to come and watch the ships arrive. And informed that they can have a choice of staying behind or here and earning their citizenship, or leaving with the strangers to the isles. Lieutenant Joseph removed his beret and rubbed the sweat from his regulation cropped hair. He replaced his beret and carefully pressed it down and desired shape and turned to watch the coming ships. Second Battalion, Eagle Company, Platoon 1, were given this duty as a simple job for them as most of the men that survived were still recuperating and HQ thought that it would be good for them to have some sun, not to mention they were with the slaves for a better part of the journey, and it was better to have familiar faces than strangers posted to watch them. Dressed in a stark dark grey uniform coat with a polished leather belt and holster, gold buttons and a pair of marking trousers with red stripes along the seams, he walked towards the princess who was holding onto her dress and a wide brimmed straw hat. Princess! Joseph grinned as she turned around in surprise and broke into a smile and a sight of him. Lord Joseph! Shireen cried out in a pleasant surprise. She last saw him was after the time he returned from the forest, covered in injuries. Have you recovered? Shouldn't you be resting somewhere? <laughs> Joseph laughed warmly. I'm all fine. Doc gave me a perfect bill of health just this day before. Are you sure? Shireen looked at him worriedly. She treated him like family, and he and the Thorne were the only people left from her life that she knew since young. Of course, of course. Joseph waved her concerns away. I'm here to help keep an eye on order, but it shouldn't be too hard, so it'll be a relaxing job. Shireen nodded. If you are not well, remember do not push yourself, okay? She reminded him again. Relax, Princess, Joseph grinned. Look, the owl ship's almost upon us. What we are missing is that old bugger Thorne, and it will be like old days. Shireen laughed. Well, I heard he's pretty busy with the new school of his, working on some project or teaching students. I didn't bite him along, but he said something about the old bones unable to ride in the jeep for long hours. It was roughly a three-hour drive from the city to Far Harbor. Ha. "'Knowing him, he must be engrossed over what artifact we found from the hero, "'and to be bothered with the ceremony,' Joseph gestured around them. <laughs> "'Sherene covered her mouth and giggled. "'I guess you're right. "'He must be deep in study trying to dig out all the secrets he can from that thing. "'Look, here they are.' "'Joseph felt a warm hearing the princess's laughter "'and watched the large and imposing sight of sailing ship slowly make its way to the pier. "'Master de Jon!' the first maid yelled. We're nearing the pier. The depth had roughly a quarter less five in holding. He stood over the anchor chains holding the weight and stone line, measuring the depth of the ocean floor as they approached the bridge. De John watched the figures on the pier suspiciously and looked behind his ship, where the other captains had formed up in a line. On the stone pier, a figure most like the portmaster was blowing a shrill whistle, all the while waving a yellow-colored flag. What is the man doing, he asked curiously, wondering why he was waving a flag. Is that some kind of warning or signal? Master John, his navigator holding up a steering wheel, spoke up. I think he might be telling us to follow him to where to tie up a ship. Really? Dijon raised his eyebrows. As in the isles, a boat will lead the ships to the docks and be tied up. Well, follow him and be on alert for any signs of trickery. The massive two dagger ship creaked and rocked its way slowly the navigator carefully steering the ship beside the stone pier, listening to the first mate calling out the depth, and the crew threw ropes over to the men who gestured for the ropes on the pier as the portmaster blew his whistle and waved his flag madly at the ship, signalling them to hold. The port workers quickly secured the ropes and the concrete pillars lining the edges of the dock, and they removed the rope barriers to allow the ship to drop the gangplanks over the pier. Half of Dijon's fleet followed him in, the other half dropped anchor and held their position in a line, their catapults and ballistas aimed towards the land and the pier. The ships following Dijon's flagship were also directed to dock with both sides of the stone pier, and soon the pier became crowded with ships for the first time. Dijon gave a sigh of relief as he noted the friendly smiles and wave to the dock workers gave the crew, but that did not ease the sense of unease ease in his heart. He glanced towards the land seeing several large walled buildings and what appeared to be large blocks of stone of some kind laid neatly on the ground. Secure the lines, the John bellowed to his excited crew. The first watch with me, the rest be on alert. His crew from the first watch gathered up at the gangplank, dressed in the best day dress, mostly a mix of colors, faded blouses, threadbare coats, and patched trousers. All were armed with a variety of weapons, from cutlasses to hooks to cudgels and even knuckle-dives, hidden daggers and hand crossbows. The small party of neatly and smartly dressed elves stood ramrod straight in perfect row in two lines. They held what appeared to be a long metal rod and wood finishings that looked like a mix of a spear with the low body of a crossbow. a very pretty lass in a long fluttering dress and holding a straw hat in one hand, Smiling at the front of the group, together with a severe looking male, in a weird flat hat, and his head in a similarly dressed to the two rows of owls. I am Fleet Master John, he declared as he stepped down the gangplank in his white and gold clustered coat, a flamboyant wide brimmed hat, and a large golden tail feather of gr- a griffon. Gold chains hung from his thick, muscular neck, while his fingers were adorned with more gold and precious stones. Yet all that wealth, he carried a simple and worn cutlass scabbard, hooked in a rich leather belt. Humble greetings, sweet master to John. Serene gave her best court curtsy, and she made her best smile, daisy the crew. I am Princess Serene, previously of the Kingdom of Goldrose, now Assistant Governor of the Colony of Mankind. Welcome to Far Harbor, friends from afar. End of chapter. Chapter 165 Trade Talks UNS Singapore Command Bridge Captain Blake sat with one arm propped against his chin as he watched the live-streaming videos displaying on multiple monitors. Commander Ford frowned and glanced back at Blake, who appeared to be dazing in his chair. Captain, don't you think we need to at least have some of our other officers, at least down at Far Harbor, to be part of the welcoming committee? Ford probed the captain. Nah, Didn't you hear that Lieutenant Tavor has briefed us? Blake lazily replied. Those locals that did not interact with us before assume that we are demons, and those that work with us have sold their souls to be granted great power. I don't think us being there will help diplomacy much, waved Ford's concerns away. Besides, Shireen has a charming effect on other people. She'll do well convincing people from the Isles. If you say so, sighed. what about the Empire now? "'Well, last we heard was the rock guy was supposed to be here, "'but Intel has lost track of him, and instead the hero came and made a huge mess,' Blake frowned. "'I guess that the rock has gone under another front, "'or is gathering his strength before he comes down on us, "'seeing how we defeated Duke Sturm and the hero.' "'It should rock the Empire back for a while, giving us some breathing space,' Blake grinned. "'Get it? The rock get rocked back on his heels. "'Please, Captain,' Ford shook his head. Are you sure you're okay? Lately you seem to be, I don't know, cheekier. He did not know what word to use to describe Blake's actions. <laughs> Blake grinned. Well, I guess something has left my shoulders. I feel the. Uh, great. Do you need a checkup? I'll page Dr. Sharon and match the thorn for full medical, both physical and magical, right now. Ford narrowed his eyes. You're not acting yourself, Captain. <laughs> Relax. Blake laughed at Ford's expression. Truth be told, Blake lowered his voice so that only Ford could hear him in the crowd at Command Bridge. Me and the princess, um, we, um, I asked her out, and, um, she agreed. (laughs) Ford burst out laughing. Oh my god, what are you? Twelve years old. Ford hugged his sides as his laughter as his red faced Blake, who grinned sheepishly back. I can't stop laughing. The crew turned to stare at the normally serious commander and wondered what the captain said to make the commander laugh till he couldn't control himself. "'Shh!' Blake glared at the red-faced Ford. "'Come on. Is it that funny?' <laughs> yes!' Ford coughed and grinned. "'Oh, yes. I mean, everyone knows you guys are together, you know.' "'Huh? What?' Blake scratched his head. "'Everyone does.' "'Of course. Everyone can see the way you two look at each other.' and how the princess blushes when she makes eye contact with you. Ford grinned wickedly, and the list goes on. I can continue, if you want. Stop. Blake raised a hand to surrender. I gave up. You guys are all like bored housewives. Ford kept his evil grin. Seriously, I mean, it's good that you guys are unofficial now. I mean, you should have seen the bets on you and her getting together. It's getting slightly a bit out of hand. What? People are betting on us getting together. Blake draw dropped in surprise. Serious? Oh, yes. Which week of the month? Who kissed who first? Ford ticked off these fingers. Well, I guess I can collect my winnings. Ha 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 What? Blake was staring at Ford, who whined back. You? ha <laughs> ha. Don't worry, I gave you a good treat with the winning bet. Ford laughed. Anyway, good job on netting the princess. Goblin Coast, Far Harbor. Princess Shireen tucked away her sunglasses carefully into a small pouch and her aide kept it away for her. She smiled at the tall, muscular sailor with the large brim hat and a golden feather swaying in the sea breeze. Please follow me. Come and have some refreshments and shade. Lieutenant Joseph yelled a command and the two marines snapped to attention and a second command and them forming up, facing each other, creating a way for the princess and their guests to walk between them master, if you may, Shireen gestured for the islander to take the lead, while she stayed next to him, escorting him towards the rows of buildings built just for this event. De Dijon schooled his face into a pleasant expression, despite having feelings of unease at this place. He looked around his surroundings, noting the neat rows with men and soldiers from the metal and wooden pole arms with what appeared to be a short sword as a spearhead. He wondered why they would have such a strange-looking weapon. That looks like a spear, yet seems more complicated, and to make them simpler spear. The naval commander in him took note of a pier, and his unease grew. Five of his ships had docked, including his flagship. Fury and selected crews had already disembarked, fully armed, and were gathering just behind him. He noticed that despite the five ships docked, and some more of the dock parallel to the pier, It could easily accommodate his entire fleet while still having space for more ships. He hid his frown, wondering why would the rebels build such a massive pier for what reason? Are they planning a fleet large enough to be utilized by this harbor? And what are those walled-up areas dotting the beach further away? The john decided to ask, if he lifted his burly arms and pointed to the distance, "'Princess, what are those?' "'Oh,' Those are warehouses and stalls yet to be built or halfway constructed, the princess answered with a smile, and those will be workshops and services to provide the ships once they have completed construction. Dijon raised his eyebrows, looking at the small, slender princess, surprised by her words. You mean all that is to be built? He gestured to the blocks of Waldorf areas, which were almost the size of a small town. Yes, Shereen nodded happily, proud of her people's work, unaware of what Dijon was feeding. We hope to have this area as a trading port in the future, and of course, we do hope that you could be our trading partners. Oh. The John kept his thoughts hidden, thinking of how they were able to afford all of these construction work and how they were going to handle the wrath of the Empire. Who built these? Shireen smiled sweetly and said, It's all done by our Earth Elementalist. She recited the script given to her by Blake. She is very valuable to help in the construction. All of these were done by her. "'If not, how do you think we managed to build it so fast?' Shireen giggled. "'People might mistake us for worshipping demons.' <laughs> "'I see.' Dijon had a grace to appear embarrassed. "'If talking about trade, what do you want to trade for?' They had walked to the end of the pier and Dijon noted the ground under the same grey-white stone material. Everything looked neat and tidy, with groups of people behind and what appeared to be a town guard's assaults with ropes barricades." Let's talk inside. Shireen gracefully gestured John into the building. That was made of the same material but more ornate in design. Several long steps led up to a facade that large round pillars and of double doors which guards dressed in all black with shiny leather belts and boots wearing a strange-looking cap opened the doors. A soft velvet carpet opened covering the main hallway and a ball of warm light lit the interior. The John looked up in surprise as the light chandelier wondering what kind of magic is that. Another flight of stairs led them up and into one of the doors. A large room with comfortable-looking chairs and a large table was arranged out in the aesthetically pleasing manner. Large windows were closed and bordered with one side of the walls, which allowed natural light to brighten the room, yet the room remained cool. The side table, filled with refreshments and covered with trays, sat on the side, which the princess gestured for the john to partake in with his captains food and refreshments will be provided for the rest of your men also supplies for your ships reason for my portmaster here he will arrange with your men to supply your ships the john nodded and spoke to one of the retainers who nodded and left the room leaving to arrange supplies for his ships the rest of the captains left their men behind and only followed by a couple of their own retainers or aides settled themselves down at the chairs Kaga tipped from the middle of the crowd as she tried her best to get a view in front. One of the nearby beastmen who had a body of a bear helpfully made some space for her, allowing her to squeeze her way to the front of the barricade. She saw the colourfully looking sailors disembarking from the ships and the crowd cheered as the sailors waved at them. Suddenly, she spotted a figure. She recognised it was the same man that saved her and gave her that piece of yummy treat. Kaga waved and shouted, trying to get his attention but the crowd was too loud and they were too far away. She tried her best to catch his attention, but he passed her without seeing her. Thinking fast, she ducked under the barrier rope and darted out, followed by a cry of surprise from the policeman in black uniform. "'Hey!' Arms reached out to grab her, stopping her from approaching the group. She barely made it a few steps before she was caught. "'You! Stop! In the name of the law!' She yelped as she was brought down in a rough ground. No, I need to talk to that man, the one in the funny hat. Nice try, girl. The guard, holding her down, shook his head. Come on, girl, this isn't the place for you to be at. Despite the initial tackle, the guards howled and spoke to her gently after seeing what she was small and cute fluffy thing, which made her tail stand up in anger. No, I'm serious. She tried to wiggle her way out but was held on too firmly by the two guards who shrugged and carried her away to the side. Wait. Hold it. A voice suddenly spoke out, and the two gods froze while Kagar's eyes widened in surprise. You metal all's grains, skilled shipwrights, De John took a sip from his crystal like goblet, holding the thin glass carefully with his coarse fingers, and savouring the sweet and tarty drink that is a hint of alcohol. Something called a uh, fruit punch, which he wondered what does the punch mean? Yes, in return, we can offer you pure alcohol, high grade steel, copper, and other metals. Shireen sank gracefully on the sofa, nibbling away at a piece of chocolate brownie. Hmm. The John frowned as he placed the goblet down. He picked up a bar of steel from the table, feeling the heft of it. I will need to have the quality of this verified. But shipwrights, the John raised his eyebrows. We don't deal with slaves. No, we just want to hire them, Shireen replied. We'll pay for their food and lodging. You want to build more ships? Dijon asked. Yes, you have to know the goblin raiders are just out there, right? Shireen replied. We do need some ships on patrol the Straits and also for fishing and, if possible, direct trade with you. Interesting, Dijon smiled. Does that mean that you are not afraid of the Empire coming for you, princess? The Empire? Shireen looked slightly downcast but quickly covered it up with a smile. They did try. Three times, in fact. Three times, John frowned as he only heard about two attacks. Didn't you hear about they sent the hero, Dante, after us? Shireen replied. And John leaned forward, curious for the answer and the news of the sun hero. Just say that the world is one lesser hypocrite who thinks he represents justice. End of chapter Chapter 166 Storytelling the colony, Academy of Science and Magic, Bachelor Thorne hummed Packerball's Canon in D-Major as he carefully scribbled down notes and observations onto his notepad as he played around with the 8K ultra-high resolution image of the hero's artifact that they had recovered. He was frankly amazed by the level of detail of the image. Every neck and scratch was shown up clearly and sharply, and he doesn't even have to squint his eyes nor wear what the humans called the corrective glasses. He sighed as he closed his eyes as Beethoven's Symphony Number no. 9 played next, letting his mind wander with the music for a while before he resumed his work. He tapped a few keys on the computer that the humans provided to him, which was as alien as it could be to him at first, but over time, it proved to be more useful in recording, retrieving, and analyzing information rapidly. Hmm? Thorne suddenly straightened up. What's this? The computer dumped several matching runes and symbols to what was found on the surface of the artifact. He had pulled his book of scrolls carefully scanned into the computer and stored it into the system with the help of his students, and the computer started beefing as its database found similar runes and iconology. Thorne frowned as he studied the information pouring out of the screen, feeling confused and shocked at the same time. My heavens, what is this? Bar Harbour Civic Centre, Fleet Master De John stood facing the floor on ceiling windows, looking outside from the second floor down into the harbour, where open-top wagons were being pushed by men, laddened with supplies to all ships docked along the Sapir. He gave a rap against the clear glass and frowned, his merchant mind spinning rapidly. The glass, is it done by a craftsman? Yes, the princess replied while sipping on the hot beverage. All made here by our own hands he turned back to the view outside, hiding the expression from the princess's view, as he digested the information. So far, all he saw was wealth and incredible workmanship everywhere, unlike the reports that they had defeated by the Empire and were on the run, before managing to fight off the persistent forces due to terrain constraints. All of these displays of wealth, do not tanny with them being on the back footing, it shows more like they were prospering instead of slowly being defeated." He looked at his ships, fully decked out and ready to intimidate and awe the rebels here, to force them into accepting whatever unfavorable deals or contracts with him. But instead, the tables appeared to have been turned. Or was this all just a ploy to show that they were strong but actually they are weak? He turned and observed the princess, who sat upright, her long legs tucked under her dress, sipping from a delicate cuff and saucer. Seemingly at ease without any traces of worries or fear in her manner or disposition. The John rubbed his stubble on his chin and turned his attention around to the lavishly decorated room, taking in all the details. From the food, drinks, to the decor, he could calculate roughly how much gold and silver was spent just to prepare these for him and his captains who were sampling and enjoying the food. The John grinned suddenly. Well, let's put my sense of unease at rest. I shall delay as long as I can and freeload with my men here. Let's see how long the princess can keep up this pretense. Ha! The jin gave out a sudden bark of laughter, making the princess raise a fine-looking eyebrow up. Tell me how you defeated the empire at the mountains. I'm sure it's a tale worthy to tell and songs to be made. The princess appeared to be lost for a minute before she nodded, and racket made by the rest of the captains quietened down as they turned their attention to the princess's words, hearing of their journey chased by the Empire troops and hounded by the bloodthirsty goblins and monsters of the uncharted forest and the brave battle at the pass. She purposely left out some details in regarding the humans' abilities, and instead retold them as allies who helped save them from the claws of the Empire. The captains cheered as they heard how they won, and cried, when told how the dead were mourned, and shuddered as they were heard of the undead walking again. They sat rapt at by the tail, their drinks, their food, their plates forgotten, as they listened to the strong soprano voice, lost in wonder and action of her words. And when the story ended, the men wept for the lost souls who fought bravely against the hero, and gave a prayer to the gods to look after their souls in the afterlife. Shireen wiped a tear away from her eyes, and she finished the story. Some parts of the story were left out, only those that were more common knowledge were told. She found her tea had turned cold and stood up to pour herself another cup, only to find the whole group of rowdy captains boring their eyes out and blowing their noses on napkins and sea scarves. Um, are you all well? she asked timidly, worried if the refreshments and the air con that had made them sick. Your story is so sad. One of them cried, sobbing into his sleeve, "'Your men are so brave.' "'Yes, that Dante, I knew he was no good,' another yelled, "'to think that he would hunt and kill girls for their life energy. Even John was affected by the story. As to them, being men who grew up sailing in the rough seas, they were mostly out of the oceans for many months, and they know about the dangers and perils of life and death as it comes easily and swiftly out in the sea.' and the sailors were quite romantic by nature and also view brotherhood and loyalty strongly. And when knowing that brave men sacrificed themselves against a godly foe, despite overwhelming odds, made their blood boil. But he frowned, wondering how did they defeat the hero in the end. So how did the hero lose? It took the combined magic of all our mages to cast to a level 9 spell that finally overwhelmed his shields. shirin simply made something up. Thinking that Blake is gonna to have to make up to her for a whole lot of lies and half truths that she spoke today. The John nodded but did not push the issue, and Shireen mentally gave a sigh of relief. The other captains refilled their plates and drinks and started to ask her more about the story she just told, asking about the details on certain parts, and she did her best to answer. The John took a bite out of the triangularly shaped red with fittings and nodded to himself as the taste was better than he expected and watched the princess trying her best to answer all the questions asked by the captains. There were several loopholes in the story she gave, but now is not the time to expose it all. Let's see how long they can play this game. He smiled as he tried to piece the fried potato. Mmm, delicious. Far Harbor Police Station. Kagar sat with her back straight as she nervously twisted the hem of the skirt before the fierce-looking soldier across the table from her. That's all I heard. So... There's a faction amongst the freed slaves that want to steal the ship from the Isles, Lieutenant Joseph asked to confirm again. Kagar nodded. Yes, I heard them talking about it the other day, and I wanted to find someone to report it to, but no one seems to take me seriously. Lieutenant Joseph sighed, looking at the shy way that Kagar was behaving. She looked like some kid around twelve years old, despite being older than that. Her fluffy-looking ears drooped downwards as she fidgeted in a seat. Relax, I'm not interrogating you, nor am I going to arrest you. If you say so. Her soft reply came back, as she didn't dare look up. Come on, Lieutenant Joseph sighed and opened up the door. You're free to go. I'll investigate on what you have reported. Thank you. Hagar gave a bow and left the room, led by one of the policemen out of the station. Sir, one of the police officers asked, do you think she's telling the truth? Yes, I believe her words, Lieutenant Joseph said. Oh, dig up on what you can with the description she gave us, and do it quietly. Yes, sir, the officer saluted and left, leaving Joseph alone in the room. Damn, Joseph frowned as he thought to himself. If those ex-slaves try to take over one of the Isles' ships, it's going to look bad for us, and the Isles might break the trade deals and relationships with us, which we desperately need the goods that they offer us. He stood and walked out to the room and called the platoon sergeant over. Spread the word. See who can find Sergeant Tyria and the 101st. If they see him, get him to come and find me. Got something to talk to him with. His sergeant nodded and saluted before leaving to spread the word amongst the troops while Joseph put his beret on and headed towards the civic center where the princess and the delicates from the Isles were at. The colony, Academy of Science and Magic. Magister Thorne paced around his table and waited for Dr. Sharon to arrive while periodically glancing at the monitor screen, which the computer was still analysing the artefact. He clasped his hands worriedly and nervously, before noticing his own gestures and tucked them into his coat pockets, muttering, Come on, come on, hurry, please. Someone suddenly knocked on the door of his office and yelled, Come in, come in. Dr. Sharon entered with a briefcase and stood over his desk. What is this That's so urgent? She stifled a yawn as she sat down on the lumpy chair in front of the desk. Look at this! Thorne excitedly snatched out a piece of paper printed out with a jumble of text and pictures. Dr. Sharon scanned the paper with the notes scribbled and frowned. Wait, is this what I think it is? Yes, Thorne nodded. The computer has found some matching text in the database and translated it out. Hummingbird on the left. Dr. Sharon rubbed her tired eyes and reread the notes. What kind of name is that? That's the best translation the computer has, Thorne had. Also, some of this I managed to find out. He started to click more files and computer and then turned the screen to face Sharon. Look! Deity of war, sun, and human sacrifice. Dr. Sharon's tiredness appeared to vanish as she read the scripts that Thorne had dug out in his research. So, this god that the hero worshipped isn't just a sun god, but also war and human sacrifice. Yes, Thorne said. Remember what the little girl told us in the hospital? She said she saw how the hero absorbed the female's life force and he was in bed with. So that was a form of sacrifice, Dr. Sharon frowned. But where did you get this from? Now that's where things get more strange. Vaughn spoke in a low voice as he stared at Dr. Sharon in a very serious manner. This data has not come from any of my books, scrolls, or my knowledge. Neither did it come from any of the mages here. The inscription here that the computer translated as Hummingbird of the left came from an ancient language, and that is from you, humans. End of chapter Chapter 167 The Things We Do for the Greater Good Far Harbour, Dockside Pier, Specialist Sergeant Terrier with the rest of Claymore One in tow looked at the two lines of colourful stalls, Lining alongside the dark side, all filled with goods of different types of food. He adjusted his stiff uniform collar, feeling slightly uncomfortable in uniform, as he hasn't worn one in months. Look, Itzu exclaimed while excitedly pointing at one of the stalls. I heard their stall serves a good bur girls. I'm hungry. Yeah, let's grab something to eat, Duval agreed as he wiped the sweat off his cap. Don't know why they sent us here for. Tyria looked around seeing a large group of islanders gawking at the wares displayed and sampling the food offered from the stalls and nodded. All right, he looked at the large clock tower from the roof of the civic center and said, buy what you want to eat and drink and meet here again after half an hour's time. Yes? It's grinned as he looped his arm around Young's shoulder, dragging him along. Come on, let's go get some food. The stores lining around the streets were specially set up for the islanders' visit, like a special bazaar with all manner of products and food currently being produced by the city. In a way, this allows the islanders to see what goods are tradable and also allows the sailors from the isles to unwind and spend some of their own money. Glassware, metalware, and even what appeared to be a toilet rolls were on display from various stalls. So for the most crowded stalls were those sending weapons, as large groups of islander sailors hanging around the stalls were the weapons and armor samples while anxious-looking police officers hovered at the side, trying to act normal but were clearly worried about some fights might break out. Kitsu ordered a few sticks of barbecued meat and a couple of hot dogs from one of the barbecue food stands, adding in a generous amount of ketchup and mustard sauce. He briefly wondered why buns with sausages were called hot dogs does that mean that the humans use dog meat for the sausages? He gestured at his elbow to Young who had your cheeseburger and they went to join the commotion at the weapon stall. The group of sailors was interested in repeating crossbow that uses a crank mechanism to load and reload, allowing a user to rapidly fire off a dozen crossbow bolts in a minute. They gathered around the fenced-off area and their straw dummy was a target, wearing a battered Empire chestplate and helmet. The sailor testing the crossbow looked slightly uncertain at the sailor who gestured how to fire and load the crossbow before he pointed at the bow at the straw target and worked the crank as he instructed. The first shot went wild, hitting the boarded up wall with the rest of the sailors jeered. The red-faced sailor appeared to want to give up, but the sailor encouraged him to try again and to hold the crossbow more firmly. The sailor gave a shrug and gripped the crossbow tightly, pointing it at the dummy and set fifty meters away. The second shot fared better and hit the leg portion of the dummy, making the others laugh and jeer. Soon, there was a bet ongoing on whether the next shot would hit the chest plate. The embarrassed sailor looked like he was about to walk away, and suddenly someone pushed through the crowd, and everyone hushed up. Hitsu swallowed a large mouthful of hot dog and saw the female sailor clad in tight leathers and silks. She yanked the repeating crossbow from the other sailor and tilted the weapon left and right admiring the workmanship and design. She suddenly snapped the crossbow against her shoulder and cranked it repeatedly, sending bolt after bolt towards the straw target till the bulky box magazine on the top of the crossbow ran dry. She tossed the crossbow back to the seller who looked at her with awe in his face, and the crowd went wild. "'Anna! Anna! Anna!' They chanted as she swept her tricone hat off, and the thick mob of luscious golden hair swirled out over the shoulders, and she gave a bow to the men who laughed and whooped before she walked up to the straw target and examined the result of her work. Hitzer's mouth remained wide open as he stared at the golden red haired sailor strut her way down the range. He suddenly choked as Young slapped his back, as he saw Hitzer glazing the female, and a piece of hot dog stuck in his throat, making him cough. <laughs> Young laughed as he watched Hitsu's antics. Hey, I thought you have two girls already. Why are you ogling at another one here? Uh, Ah, what? Hitsu thumped his chest, waltzing the piece of a hot dog down his throat. What girls? (laughs) That bully and the crazy mage girl. Young winked at Hitsu. What? Hitsu nearly dropped all of his food as he started to deny any involvement with those two girls. Serious? (laughs) Young laughed as he finished his burger. Everyone knows you like little girls. Hitsu wiped the ketchup and mustard from his mouth. You gotta be kidding me. <laughs> Young laughed. Anyway, that chick, she looks way out of your league. Hitsu sighed and finished up his food as he was about to leave. A clear and boisterous voice called out to them. Turning around, they saw the earlier female soldier standing there with her arms and her hips, walking towards him with a few other sailors in tow. You too. The female gestured to them both with a jerk of her head. Your uniforms look different from the rest. Who are you? M- me? Hitsu stammered as he stared at his heart shaped face covered in golden red hair. Ah uh, um I-, I I'm Hitsu. Young, on the other hand, nearly face palmed himself as the sad display gave Hitsu giving away. We're a part of the Hundred and First. Hundred and first The female sergeant frowned and looked at the rest of the sailors with confused expression. You carry yourselves different from the rest of those black shirts and those grey shirts. Young looked down the grey dress uniform, similar to the marines, except the pants were trimmed with gold instead of red. He gave a shrug. We're just simple soldiers. Soldiers, eh? The female raised an eyebrow up, then cared to explain how the repeating crossbows worked to the poor sailor. The rest of the sailors laughed with a giggle amongst themselves. Eh? You are... Hitsu shyly asked, "'My name is Anna, Anna Booney, first mate of the man-of-war, Talon.' She proudly raised up her chin. "'So tell me, how do those crossbows work, soldier boy?' Um Young looked at Hitsu and scratched his head. "'Well, you work the crank, it drops the bolt down from the box at the same time. It pulls the string back and locks the arms into place. When you pull it all the way back, the string is released and the bolt is thrown out and you crank it again to repeat.' Mm, such an ingenious way of firing rapidly. Is that how you defeated the Empire? Anna asked, her eyes boring deep into Young who coughed comfortably. Yes, twenty men armed with repeating crossbows is as powerful as a regiment of crossbow men, Young explained. But of course, compared to a regular crossbow, it has a weaker penetrating strength and range. Interesting soldier boy. Anna gave a wink and walked off. Be seeing you again. Wow, did she wink at me? It's a sight. My poor heart can't handle it. You and your damned nonsense, young shook his head. Come on, do we need to head back to find the rest? Damn, she's hot. Hitsu sighed again, looking at the disappearing back of the first mate of the Talon. Tyria Lieutenant Joseph quickened his steps as he spotted Tyria near the food stall. Just nice. I was just looking for you. Hey, Lieutenant, what's up? Tyria swallowed a sweetbread roll and a stall owner called a doughnut and he finished off a gulp of root beer, some drink made out of the essence of some root or bark of a tree. We need to talk, I need your help, Lieutenant Joseph said, while pulling Tyria to a quiet corner. We might have a small security problem. Why me? Can't the police or security guys handle it? Tyria frowned. We're supposed to be an R&R now. Well, it's the ex-slaves, Lieutenant Joseph said in a low voice. Some of them want to run and take over one of the old ships. What? Tyria cursed. Are they stupid? Well, since you guys actually had fought together and they trust you more, Lieutenant Joseph continued, I'd like you to talk them down. Talk them down? Tyrion asked. I want to beat them up. Who is coming up with such a silly idea? The guide called Caesar. Lieutenant Joseph took out a note from his breast pocket. He handed it over to Tyria and glanced at its contents. Oh, this guy? Tyria frowned. I remember him. Quite the whiner. Think you can do something about the sky without hurting our relationship with the islanders? Lieutenant Joseph asked as he watched the group of islanders' sailors trying to get some hot dogs from the food stall. Well, it depends on how much you want me to fix it, Terrier asked, quietly or verbally. I'm guessing the sky will be troubled in the future, Lieutenant Joseph said, seeing the sailors buying another round of food, this time cheeseburgers, as they enjoyed the hot dog, quietly and out of sight. Tyria nodded. "'Do we have his position?' "'He was last reported at the back of the hostels. Lieutenant Joseph gestured towards the right, where the rows and bungalow-like houses were constructed for the island to stay. "'I got a tail on them.' "'Is it official, or—' Tyria narrowed his eyes as he asked the question. "'What do you think?' Lieutenant Joseph turned and looked back at Tyria in the eye. Tyria nodded. "'Got it. I'll send word once it's done.' "'He should have one or more accomplices. "'Deal with them, and this problem goes away,' "'Lieutenant Joseph added as Tyrier walked off, waving. "'Lieutenant Joseph watched Tyria disappear into the crowd as he sighed. "'The things we do for the greater good. "'Far harbour, back at your bungalow row, Four men were crouching behind some large empty wooden crates. "'One of them spoke while placing some items on the ground. "'I managed to grab some of these while the stalls were busy and distracted.' The one speaking held a couple of short, straight-tipped steel daggers. There are too many guards around, and I don't dare steal more. Good work. That's a start. A thin, yellow-faced half grinned in the shadows. Ashtar, what did you find out about the future ride? Looks like we'll be going aboard the Ocean Dreamer, the man called Ashtar replied. As he played with one of the daggers, it's a transport, and there was a word that the islanders might stay for at least a week before leaving. A week? Caesar looked surprised. I thought they'd only be here for three days. Well, I overheard the sailors saying that they'll be staying about a week before leaving. Ashtar shrugged. Everyone in the docks heard them. See, my friends, these so-called rebels are tricking us, telling us to trust them, but yet something as simple as departing from this land, they can't even give us the truth. Caesar shook his head in sadness. When we return, spread the word, Caesar smiled. Let the rest know the truth. This is way we can gain more supporters. My, my, what of the gathering you guys have here? A voice suddenly spoke over to them, making them jump in shock. Now that I have your attention, I believe it is time for you all to, um, disappear. End of chapter Chapter 168 Awakenings a snap of a cervical vertebra cracked loudly in the sudden silence as a limp body with an expression of surprise still at his face, slumped down into the concrete floor. Hitsu patted his uniform, dusting it as he made sure these medals were not dirtied or damaged in any way. Caesar and the remaining two men were rooted on the spot as they recognized the person, and the voice that spoke walked into the of sight. Remember I told you before that if you can't help, then at least stay out of the way and not bring more troubles to everyone. Taria stood before the fear-stricken men. I told you that I would kill you if you became a burden to me. And it appears that my words did not get through into your thick skulls. No, no, no wait, 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 how did you know? Caesar yelped in panic as his eyes widened in fear. We're, we're, we're not doing nothing. Nothing. Geriot raised a questioning eyebrow as, using the tip of his shiny boots, he towed the daggers laying on the floor. While it might not be a crime to own a bladed weapon, but these surely are something you planned on using on some stupid plan of yours. No! Wait! Caesar looked around wildly, seeing all the exit of the alley had blocked men of the same uniform that he recognized them all. They were the fearsome mercenaries who fought against the crazy hero to a standstill. I can explain! It's too late for explanations, Tyria replied. In fact, letting you live for the past few seconds, talking here is already good enough for you. Tyria gave a gesture and three shadows darted in. No! The terrified man yelled out, only to have his mouths covered and his strong arms gripping over the necks. A sudden twist and a crack, and all three died with terror frozen on their faces. Damn, this sucks, Gitsu said as they laid the four bodies in a row. I thought we were on a vacation. Stop grumbling, Terrier replied as he walked out of the alley and gestured to a black, uniformed officer in the distance. You there, you know who Lieutenant Joseph is? Good. Tell him it's done. That is all. Thank you. The officer nodded and tried to peek into the alley, but Altier had blocked his view. Something is best to be ignorant of. He advised the police officer who gave a brief nod and left. ''Come on, let's clear the bodies up and wrap it up,'' Tyria said. ''Tonight, Lieutenant Joseph is going to treat us to a big meal for the crap that he dropped on us.'' ''Hoorah!'' the men of Claymore One cheered as they melted into the shadows of the alley. Far Harbour, Civic Santa, Lord Joseph nodded as the police officer whispered something into his ear and thanked him, thinking that he needed to treat those Claymore One guys to beer or something later. He knocked on the double doors and pushed it open and entered into the large reception room. Princess Shireen gave a charming smile as she saw who was entering and waited for him to take up a seat in an informal setting. Lieutenant Joseph glanced around the room, noting that the islanders were all watching him and gauging him. He walked over to the refreshments table and took a cup of tea, stirring in some sugar and cream before heading over to the group seated around in a long, loose circle. "'This is Lieutenant Joseph Token.' The princess introduced them to the gathered islanders. He was Lord General of the Army of Goldrose. General, the John rose up and gave the islander salute, which Joseph waved it off. I am no longer Lord General. He grinned. I am just a humble soldier now. I see. The John nodded. We heard about your exploits with the hero, and you also your efforts in saving the freed slaves. For that, we thank you. I'm curious, Fleetmaster De John. Joseph said as he sat down. Why would the Isles go into so much trouble just to save a few slaves? The John leaned back in his chair and studied Joseph and the princess. He steeped his fingers together, giving a nod and bluntly said, "For manpower, manpower." Joseph looked at the princess, who also had a clueless expression on her face. Yes, manpower. De John smiled before explaining. Look, the Isles are just several large islands. My nation lacks the land to grow crops or ruin cities. Look at how aggressive the Empire is going. The two-nation alliance is what is left of the mainland, not counting you and your merry band of rebels, the John said. Sooner or later, the two-nation alliance will fall apart, and what is left of just remnants of royalty and rebels, which, frankly, the Empire can just sweep everyone away once they have control of the whole mainland. Once they have the mainland, where do you think they will turn their eyes to next? John continued. They would surely turn the right to the Isles, and while we have a mighty fleet, we can't fight with a population ten times our size. That's the reason why we need more people, John answered Joseph's question. We have unsettled islands ripe for starting new towns and ports, money and transports and all of that is not an issue. We lack the people to settle down. I see. Joseph looked at the princess who gave a slight nod, confirming their theory as to why the Isles needed slaves. Well, why not we take a break for now? Shireen stood up and smiled. Let me show you to your rooms and let you settle in. We meet up for dinner later. The john nodded and he stood, as the rest of the captains followed him and the Princess Shireen led them to the reception hall, showing them the way to their rooms while Joseph remained behind, deep in his own thoughts. Guiness, Singapore. Command Bridge. So, what we suspected is true, Captain Blake said in the image of Princess Shireen shown in the main screen. ''Yes,'' the real-time imagery nodded. ''So far, that is what they are telling us. There might be another reason that they are not telling us, but it is believable so far.'' Blake nodded. ''How about the trade deal? Did they accept your offers?'' ''They need some time to verify the quality of our goods and also time to appraise them,'' Shirene replied. ''They decided to stay longer and stayed before, extending it from three days to five-day week, now or longer.'' ''I see,'' Blake scratched his chin. We have enough supplies for them. Yes, Shireen nodded. I predicted that they might test our resources by purposely overextending their stay, so I had stockpiled enough food to last them at least a month. Great thinking, Blake smiled, and Shireen turned away from the camera, blushing. Now, most of the ex-slaves appear to want to stay and then follow them to the isles, and that will probably raise some attentions. Don't worry, Shireen winked. I know how to sweeten the pot for them so that they won't make much noise over the lack of manpower that you bring home. Ha ha ha! Thank you for your hard work, Blake replied. Well, you better reward me when I get back, Shireen winked again and Blake a crisp at the camera, before ending the call, much to the crew's amusement. Commander Ford laughed and winked at Blake, mimicking the princess's actions and blew a kiss at him. You buggers! Somewhere north of the colony, a small quake rocked the inside of a smoking mountain, radiating its surroundings. Creatures ran and fled as the volcano shook, its smoking peak boiling and vomiting out magma down its slopes. A low rumble came from the insides of the volcano, and something stirred in the depths of the glowing red river of magma, and a dark shape slowly raised from the molten earth. It crawled out of the magma, and the liquid earth cooled as it hit the surrounding area. Turning its body rock hard. The creature shook its body, and flakes of hardened crust broke away, and it crawled its way out towards the many cave tunnels. Before long, it emerged from the top of the volcano, the air around it, before spreading its wings and sending out the rest of the hardened crust breaking away from its body. It gave a roar as it tasted the air, having slept for hundreds and hundreds of years. It was awakened by something and it stretched its serpentine body as it perched to the volcano peak, its large yellow eyes narrowing as it spotted a creature and animals running away in fear from its appearance. It leapt off the peak and spread its wings, allowing the hot air currents to fill its wings' membranes and it glided lazily in a circle before it tilted its body down and darted towards the windwolf who tried to dodge to the side but the agile dragon snapped its claws and latched tightly onto the death grip, sinking its claws into the hide of the wolf, which yelped and cried in pain. The dragon gave off so much heat that the wolf's hide started to char and its fur burst into flames. The wolf yelped and screamed in pain, desperately trying to escape from the claws of the dragon carrying it into the air, but soon its struggles weakened as its bodies boiled and cooked from the heat of the dragon. The dragon landed on a flattish peak of a mountain and started to feast on the cooked flesh of the wolf, relishing the taste of a fresh kill. After hundreds of years of hibernation, as it finished its meal, it found a comfortable place to sleep over the meal. The dragon roared out a continuous flame, scorching the terrain around it till the rock melted to form a bowl shaped depression. With the ground hardened, the dragon nodded in satisfaction and curled up into a ball and dozed off. Simmering waves of heat could be seen rising from its body as the snoozing dragon, and none of the creatures nearby dared to return to their nests and dens, as they fled in fear at the new boss monster that appeared. UNS Singapore R&D Laboratory Senior Spaceman Mason tapped on some keys in the computer and the ship Carpenter, a mar hovering over his shoulder. We give it a double planked hull, adding two straight beams called combings and run the length of the chart of cows dayroom and engine hatch, and are integrated to the hull. These beams will add strength and help seal water out since they rise up from the deck. This will give us the strength without excess weight, and laminating the wood would help too. We have the machinery and glue to bond the wood, making it stronger. Mason added for a Mars benefit. We can use the foam sealant of the Singapore uses to repair breaches on its hull. It is highly heat and water resistant, and we have tons of the stuff lying around from sealand. Amar looked confused, which Mason ignored now that we have the design, we just need to work out the model and test it. Mason continued this I need your help to make You're the model for out for testing. Your humans are amazing. Amar peered at the screen, looking at the detailed lines of the drawings and plans. I have no idea what is happening here. I might think your people are demons <laughs> Mason laughed. Your magic is just as strange to us as our technology is to you. So, no complaints. Talking about magic, Mason jolted up. I think we can further strengthen the hull with magic reinforcement runes. This way, we will not need to use the steel to brace the internal bulkheads. End of chapter Chapter 169 My Spy With My Eye Fleetmaster De John took a swig of his ice cold foaming root beer and munched on a large triangular piece of bread, which the locals called pizza. The tasted sweet and sour with the salty gooey cheese and slices of meat sausage tasted heavenly. As De John finished the third slice of the round bread that was cut into six slices. Fleetmaster and captains, the magical wards are in place. The fury-ship mage bowed and gathered the men and settled down in the corner of the reception hall, where Dijon had requested from the princess for her personal use. Good, now no one can listen or scry into our meetings. So, let's start. John wiped his greasy hands onto the tablecloth and gestured for his captains to report their findings. It's over two days since we landed. What do we know of these, um, rebels? Master Dijon, the captain of the Man of War, Bore, asked. The my men tested the weapons the rebels were offering, and so far, they are quite impressed, especially with the repeating crossbows. Its range might be shorter and the power weaker than our steel crossbows, but the rate of fire is crazy. One man can fire off more bolts than a file of five men armed to steel crossbows in turn or glass. I strongly advise we purchase some repeating crossbows back and hand them over to the weapons guild for them to learn and discover how they work. The captain of the boar added, It'll greatly increase our fighting strength if we have men equipped with such weapons. The rest of the captains nodded and voiced their approval, for they too had seen and played with the repeating crossbows. The john nodded, Do it, see what the princess wants to trade for those crossbows. Next. The quality of the refined steel is much tougher and durable compared to ours. The greying sailor with the gold loops on his ears spoke up. I tested a few bars to sample steel and they offered us and made this. The sailor brought out a long package wrapped in soft leather and handed it over to De John, who curiously unwrapped the bundle to find a shiny curved cutlass. This is? De John asked the old hand as he lifted the cutlass and admired the light. I forged this with the steel they gave us, the old smith replied. Carborn steel they called it. I tested it, and it proved to be at least two times stronger than our current steel that we produced. It's almost like mithril. I see. John stood up and gave the cutlass a few experimental swings and sweeps. Torn, draw your sword. The broad-shouldered captain of the Talon stood up and drew his cutlass out. With a loud ah, he jumped downwards at John, who parried lightly with fast reflexes. A loud clang echoed out in the hall and a piece of metal snapped off of the cutlass held in Torn's grip. His cutlass had broken off in a sharp attack on Dijon. Dijon nodded in pleased manner as he examined the blade surface for any imperfections, barely finding any nicks. This is good steel indeed! He handed the cutlass pommel first to Torn, who took it and started to swing it around. Dijon picked up the broken sword and observed the blade, seeing where the two edges had met and the force of both swords broke of poorer quality iron steel. He nodded again. Well, if they can supply us large quantities of this carbar and steel, it will definitely increase our fighting strength, the old smith said while the rest of the captains muttered amongst themselves and nodded. Good! This is a wasted trip after all, John grinned wildly. The princess had offered us these materials in exchange for grains, raw ores, processed wood, and most importantly, shipbuilding techniques. For raw materials and food, it's a good deal in exchange for repeating crossbows and cardboard steel, The Dijon said, but in exchange for shipwrights to teach them how to make ships? master," the captain spoke up, we shouldn't offer them shipwrights, their weapons and steel we can trade for, and the masters will sooner or later unlock the secrets to their production means. Therefore, trading our ways to make ships will not be worthwhile to us. Yes, we agree too. The captains voiced their thoughts. Why let them profit? We can just sell the ships to them. John nodded, and then it settled. We will not agree to teaching the rebels how to build ships. Rather, we will offer them our ships for sale." Next, what else is worthy to be traded? De John asked as he picked up another slice of pizza. UNS Singapore Command Bridge. So these islanders don't want to share their shipbuilding technology, but rather offers us some old ships for sale? Captain Burke frowned as he watched the live feed of the islander meeting on the far harbour. Damn, those money-grubbing bastards... I hoped to lure a batter steel and repeating crossbows would be enough to entice them to shed technology. Well, not every day is Sunday, Blake sighed. Princess squeezed them hard in exchange for the carbon steel and the crossbows. I think they are also interested in the canned food and glass. The image on the side of the video freed, nodded as she was too viewing and listening to the ongoings in the reception room, as they had bugged the whole area with both audio and video devices. Magic wards, ha! Not getting the initial shipwrights is still within our plans, but raw resources are important. Our current output from the new mines are still below our needs, and the Isles can provide enough raw resources to cover our deficits. Luckily, the harvest is doing fine, and there will be less spoilage of the harvest since the tractors with combine harvesters were introduced. Shireen smiled happily, and she was glad that the food will not be many issues for the winter months. Blake nodded, glad that he pushed hard for Chief Matt and his team to produce some sort of simple combine harvester that was powered by the same V-9 engines the aircraft were using. Dozens of large spinning harvesters were deployed for all the farms, vastly improving the rate of harvesting crops and preventing the rest of the crops from overriping and spoilage. I guess the fleet master will speak to me tomorrow after they're done with the discussion. The princess's tidy portrait spoke. I'd better go prepare my notes if I want to counter their offers. Bye. They grinned as the casual way the princess signed off, thinking that she started to be more and more carefree when badly influenced by media the entertainment broadcasting team was throwing out. He looked up to see the bridge crew turning away and hiding their smiles as they acted busy. He sighed, wondering if it was the media team or his crew that were badly influencing the princess. Sawtooth Mountain Holding Camp Kagar Whitetail was feeling conflicted, as ever since she reported the manner of the soldier, the ones that were involved in the conspiracy went missing. She wandered around the camp's common area, trying to see if she could find them, but for the past two days, she couldn't see the shadow of them. What had she done? She berated herself and started to question her own beliefs. Are the so-called humans demons that require sacrifices? If so, that is why those who opposed them had gone missing." She suddenly felt very lonely and afraid of this place, despite the number of people around her. She had no friends here, as everyone kept a respectful distance from her due to her spirit powers and the beastmen treated her as an elder, while the owls normally don't get close to beastmen. As she was feeling down, her senses suddenly felt someone was spying on her and she spun around, trying to locate the source. Something had triggered her sixth sense, and she felt a chill down her spine as she looked around her fluffy ears twitching as she scanned her surroundings. Kawaii. Her twitching ears heard something strange as she turned in the direction of the voice came from and saw two short-eared humans crouching suspiciously behind some crates outside the fence of the camp. She narrowed her eyes and glared at the two people, who suddenly noticed her looking their way and they both ducked down, trying to hide from sight. Already feeling unhappy, she stormed her way to the wire fence and glared at the two men trying to squeeze themselves behind the stack of crates, but fading terribly. "'You there! What are you up to? Um, go coming aside, coming go one of them said like praying and bowing, wearing a pair of strange artifacts on his face that covered his eyes. The other was trying to crawl away with something black and blocky in his hands. "'Are you a thief?' Kagar asked, speaking in common, as she couldn't understand English, or whatever they were trying to say. Ah, uh, no, no we, we, we know Thief. The weird guy with the strange contraptions around his eyes spoke back in a halting common tongue. Kagar observed them both and found them to be wearing somebody uniform, like what most of the rebels do. Are you workers here? Work? Yes, yes, work. The strange duo both looked at her as if she was some goddess, making her feel conscious of her own body. And she turned her body away from hugging herself. You, what are you doing? You're so suspicious. I'm going to call the gods. She yelled angrily as she blushed. No, no, we we, no, no no suspicious. We work. One of them showed a sort of card that was clipped onto his breast pocket of his uniform, while in his hand he was holding some strange black item. What is that? She asked curiously, pointing at the black object. Uh, oh, this? Uh, both men looked at each other and then suddenly gave out a silly laugh. N- nothing. Shh! Both of them quickly hushed her. Uh, okay, okay, this is a camera. cam Al Kagar looked confused at the Inish word. What does it do? It, um, pictures. The guy with the tiny thingy spoke, hesitated. Pick-cure? Kagar was even more confused. Look. The guy turned the object around and showed the back of it to the fence. Kagar leaned forward and saw some ruins light up and then suddenly an image of what appeared to be her incredible likeness appeared on the surface. What? Kagar hissed, her tail and ears standing up as she glared at him. Evil! You steal my spirit! No, 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 no steal, spirit! The guy cried out in surprise. Picture! Look! He turned and pointed at the nearby tree and clicked something before showing it to Kagar. Kaga hissed in warning as she pushed the evil artifact towards her, and she saw an identical image of the tree inside the artifact. What magic is this? N-no n- magic. The two laughed and seemed to wipe the tears of sweat away as relief k- Kaga calmed down. T- take picture. I can capture anything inside. Kaga looked suspiciously at the screen and tapped a hard object with her extended claw nails. do not break. Holding the artifact hugged her close to his chest, saying some weird language. Antique DLSL Nikon D850. Kagar leaned back and looked at them with disgust. You two are weird. N- no weird, the man yelped. We-, we take picture. Of you. What? Why? Kagar narrowed her eyes in fright, wondering what they wanted her for the picture. Cat girls. The two guys spoke in unison. Real cat girls. <laughs> um... Kaga looked frightened by the two of them and slowly backed away from the two strange men. My mummy told me not to speak to strangers, and she turned tail and ran off in fright. Crazy humans! Ah! Nikon mimimi mo! End of chapter Chapter 170 History and Wrecks Skies over the southeastern Goblin Coast, 228 kilometers from Far Harbor. Quicksilver flared his wings and glided along the coastline. His small crew of two were seated in a tandem on his back, observing the area around them as they did their routine aerial patrol. Quicksilver's dark silver scales glittered in the sun as he made a slow bank over the coast, his horns and the rigid serpentine head looking around alertly. the yawned as he stretched his stiff body covered in a thick flight suit. See anything interesting, Prera? Nothing but sand, sea, and trees. Prera replied as he glanced at his wristwatch. Well, we do another pass along the coast and we can return to base. Yay! Grother cheered. Quick, you hear that? Yash! Quick hissed as he flapped his wings and gathering speed and did a loop as they went along the coast for the last round, when he suddenly spotted something in the distance. Wait, I see something. What? Both the aviator crews went on alert. Where? Our two o'clock direction, Quicksilver replied. Follow the coastline and see that dark outline against the waves. Head that way, Perra ordered as his crew chief. go Gotha, report back to base. Tell them we're investigating an anomaly. Quicksilver returned to the original course and left their usual patrol route as they headed towards the unknown sighting around the coast. It's a ship, Quicksilver exclaimed, as his eyesight was better than the owl's. Spotting the object was ashore against the rocks and reefs, Perra put a pair of field glasses, replied, I think that's the missing ship from the Isles. Bring us down for a closer look to see if we can spot any survivors, Perry yelled over the wind. Quicksilver bobbed his head in acknowledgement and arrowed wings, losing altitude fast and increasing his speed. Soon the individual masts and the beached-up ship were to be seen clearly, and Quicksilver flared out his wings. "'reducing his speed, and he did a lazy sweep around the wreck. "'See anyone?' "'Berra asked as he gripped the saddles of the bars tightly "'as Quicksilver did an almost ninety-degree tilt. "'I don't see anything,' Gotha yelled back "'as he was too hung on tightly at the saddle bars. "'Keep circling,' Berra commanded "'as they peered around the wreckage, "'trying to find any signs of life. "'Gotha, radio mother. "'Dragon 2 to mother, come in over. "'Other, send.' Dragon 2, spotted a shipwreck off the coast of the Goblin Sea. Over. Mother, Roger, send coordinates. Over. Dragon 2, stand by. Gotha removed a flap-covered map and started to read off the numbers on the map and the back to base, who acknowledged the coordinates. Mother is telling us to stand by for support. Gotha yelled as he secured the radio set. ETA, one hour. Got it, Perra nodded. Quick, bring us down, not too close to the wreckage. We wait to support to come. Quicksilver slowly came gliding to a stop over the white sandy beach, and his claws landed on the soft warm sand. Digging deep as his full weight was slowly settled down into his claws, both Perra and Gotha unbuckled their harnesses and removed shotguns from the casings and climbed down from Quicksilver's back. Damn Gotha shoved his aviator, helmet's visor up, and grimaced at the heat coming off the sand. It's bloody hot. Stay on alert, Perris said, as he kept his eyes on the distant trees. There is at least a hundred men or more on board that ship, and they can't have all have drowned from the storm. Yeah, so where are they? Gother asked. Where have they gone? God knows. The colony, the Academy of Sciences and Magic. Dr. Sharon sat on the sofa of Magister's thorn and swiped her tablet as she dug out some historical text from the UNS Singapore's archives. There was sadly not much, as most of them were just basic books from Ship's Entertainment Library. Do you know who this hummingbird to of the left? Manchester Thorn asked from this desk, covered by stacks of old scrolls and manuscripts. They had been working on and off on this topic for the past few days. Roughly, I can guess, Dr. Sharon replied distractedly. Lately, the voices in her head had disappeared, making her have a sense of unease in her heart. Well, at least I think I am right. Who is it? Major Thorne asked curiously as he stood up from his seat and to drag his chair over to the sofa where Dr. Sharon was sitting. I did not know that you humans have gods. Well, to be frank, we have many gods, but science had proven those gods to be just beliefs created by man. But who's to say what religion is wrong? Dr. Sharon explained. But then again, after coming here, I won't be surprised to find our gods are real too. So this hummingbird, Major Thorne asked again, what kind of god is it? Well, if I guess rightly, he's from the Mayan or Aztec civilization, Dr. Sharon replied. I can't remember the full details. Maybe two thousand years ago? My history of South American culture is lacking. I only roughly can guess. South American. Thorne looked confused. It's the name of a continent from the world we're from, Dr. Sharon explained. But if this is a Mayan or Aztec god, then we're kind of in a big mess, Dr. Sharon looked up at Thorne. They are famous for sacrifices, from babies to young to male or female to old. Is that why your computer listed it as a god or sacrifices in war? Thorne asked. But why the sun too? I seriously have no idea, Dr. Sharon said. I think we need to look for help. Maybe someone who studied ancient South American history or cultures on board this ship. Shipwreck off the southeastern goblin coast, 238 kilometers from far harbor. The Valkyrie engines' pitch grew louder and louder as they came to hover a short distance away from Quicksilver, who stuffed his ears with wingtips as the roar of the engines irritated his sensitive hearing. Marines hopped out, ignoring the little green figures, who screeched insults from the hull. "'The manies! Go and pay! Stop eating and grow fat! Too fat, my god, plane can't lift your fat ass off the skies!' Next time you walk. The Marine with three silver stripes on his sleeves jogged over to the officer that had as a single gold bar on his shoulder and stood before Quicksilver and his crew. So you guys called for some tender loving care? Quicksilver blinked his eyes in amusement at the way the human was talking while his two crew members looked momentarily confused. Ah, never mind, it's a joke. The human Marine rolled his eyes. (coughs) Sergeant Mills... The slightly embarrassed-looking officer coughed. ''I think I'll do the talking. You go and check on the troops.'' ''Got your outie.'' Mills gave a wink and ran off towards the marines spread around the beach. ''I'm Lieutenant Carraths, 1st Battalion Bravo Company, Platoon 1.'' Lieutenant Karaths replied. ''You guys saw anyone alive from the wreck?'' Both Pera and Gotha shook their heads. ''We had Quicksilver here and called out amongst the Forage Edge, but no one replied.'' ''Great.'' Lieutenant Carrath rubbed his forehead between his eyes. Okay, I need you guys up to provide some eyes over the sky, while me and the boys move to do a sweep. Sergeant Mills, Lieutenant Carraths yelled and Mills came over. Get the men ready, we're going into the forest and do a spread. Make sure everyone keeps within five meters away and be on constant visual contact with each other. Yes, sir, Mills cheerfully replied and went off to inform the men. He had recently been promoted after finishing his instructor role at Camp Alpha and now he got posted to 1st Battalion, Robber Company, Platoon 1 as a 3rd Sergeant. The men quickly spread out in double-line formation and entered the forest, their weapons on alert as they swept the land for any signs of life. One of the leading points men held out a precious motion and heartbeat sensor, his long ears peeking out from his headset of the tracker. We do a five-kilometer sweep, and if there is still nothing, we report back to HQ and await further orders, Lieutenant Carrance said to Moles, who nodded. He was slightly in awe of Moles, as he had heard some stories and rumors of him during the officer-cadet school days. Then Mills once got hit by a fireball, and still continued fighting while on fire, and his skin melting off. Roughly an hour later, someone yelled, and the sweep came to a halt. Lieutenant Carrance and Moles walked up to the Marine, who gave up the alert. "'Sir! Sarge! Look here!' "'On the ground were clearly remains of a campfire.' "'Mills crunched down to fill the campfire, "'finding a cool to the touch, and he shook his head. "'Maybe a day or more old. It's cold. "'Look here! Looks like blood!' someone cried. "'They saw several large splatters of something dark "'and even a large patch here and there, "'with the ground looking disturbed. "'Looks like they've fought here. Looks like some tracks. "'Wait!' These look like Orkin footprints, one of the point men spoke up. He examined the tracks in the dirt. Yeah, smells like them too. Crap, Moles cursed. So the missing crew was taken by Orks? Can't tell for sure, but let's report in, Lieutenant Carrath replied. Radio men? So, are we following the tracks? Moles asked as he watched the tracks leading deeper into the forest. No, Lieutenant Carrath replied hurriedly. Let's see what HQ says. The radio man started to make his call back to HQ, having found a small break in the canopy. So, what now? Mills asked as the rest of the Marines formed a circular security cordon around the campsite. Sir, we can't get through to HQ, the radio man replied as he fiddled with the radio set. Now, T? Mills asked again as he looked at Karats. Um, Karats rubbed his forehead. We fall back to the wreck, he said after a moment. Huh? Mills gave a look of surprise. Seriously, sir? We're not going to follow the tracks. It might be a trap, Karath said. Until we get confirmation from HQ, we do nothing. Okay, Moles frowned and gave the order to the men to pull back. It took them another hour to exit the forest, but then all of them were tired, hot and sweaty. Damn, wild goose chase, Moles muttered under his breath. What a waste of time and energy. Sir, the radio man cried. HQ says to proceed with extreme caution and see if we can follow the tracks. Got it, um, men, we're heading back in. Take a fifteen minute break, Karaths yelled. What? Moles couldn't believe his ears of what he was hearing. Even the men were grumbling as they flopped down and sat down against the trees to rest. LT, Moles strolled up to Karaths, who was wiping his face with a hand towel. We just wasted an hour walking out of the forest, and now we're going back in again. Well, Sarge, you heard the radio. HQ wants us to check where the tracks lead to, Karaths replied. But sir, the men are tired, and we do not know how far those tracks might lead to, he explained. The men are fine. They are trained for this, Karath proudly replied. That is not what I meant, sir. Moles patiently tried to reason with Karath's. We do not know how long we will be in the forest, and we will need supplies. Not an issue, Karath replied confidently. We have the Valkyrie's airdrop in supplies to us when needed. Oh my gods! moles whispered under his breath as he watched Gareth walk away. We're so screwed. End of chapter Chapter 171 Lost War Harbour Civic Centre The reception room's furniture had been rearranged the night before. Now a long table was set in the middle of the room with the high back chairs all around. Yet only two chairs were occupied— one by fleet master to John, while opposite him sat the princess. The rest of the captains and aides stood respectfully behind him, while the princess's retinue did the same. A piece of parchment was placed before each of them, with a pen on them to sign the terms and conditions listed. The isles will provide ten thousand stones of iron, copper, zinc and lead, nickel and tin each, five thousand heads of egg-laying bird worms and a thousand heads of muffalo, two flying fish-car schooners and a dozen fishing boats. Princess Shireen read from the contents written down on the contract. One stone is 100 kilograms. In exchange, we will provide 10,000 repeating crossbows, 10,000 sets of half-plate armor, 10,000 sets of half-faced helmets, 20,000 sets of cutlasses, and 10,000 sets of long daggers, all made out of carbon steel, 20,000 small-sized mason jars with lids for food canning, and 1,000 pure glass panels. Shireen looked up from the contract and smiled sweetly. All to be traded within two months' time. <coughs> Master Dijon frowned, acting like he got cheated by the princess. The two flying fish-class schooners were over five years old and leaking, and well below the isle's standards for an ocean-faring ship, while the fish ships were a small, sized, and cheap and easy to manufacture. Princess Shireen smiled despite knowing that John most likely will be giving her the two older ships in the fleet. But Blake had said that it was all right to accept the deal, as they planned to tear the ships down and learn how to make their own with the discovery of the shipwreck and the coast of the Goblin Sea. Blake had told her not to inform the Islanders about the discovery, as they planned to salvage the wreckage of their own use once the Islanders had returned. Well, at least the glass was cheap and easy to make for us, thought Shireen, as she signed and stamped the official seal onto the parchment and did the same with the other copy. Pleasure doing business with you, Fleet Master. I hope there will be more opportunities for us to trade between us. John nodded and gave a bow. The pleasure is mine, and of course, as a merchant, we will never turn down our clients. Now let us celebrate. John grinned, his early expression of stern face disappearing as he picked up a glass of wine and toasted the princess. Somewhere in the forest north of the wreck Mills cursed as he slapped some insect buzzing around his ear. He wiped beads of sweat off his face. His helmet long removed hours ago and secured to his harness webbing as he wore the jungle hat instead. He looked around at his surrounding men, looking at their tired and listless faces as they toiled through the forest mindlessly, barely keeping an eye around the surroundings. They had been following the tracks for more than a day and their supplies had run out. While the lieutenant tried to call for supply and run, The interference in the forest blocked all the attempts to communicate out. The tracks were followed, led them deeper into the forest, an unexplored region that the marines and surveyors had barely touched. Hence, there were no maps, not even transmission towers installed, and the dumb prick L.T. had to bring them in without any resupply. Mills cursed with his mind. Sarge, one of the marines called out, where are we going? Hell if I know, Mills replied harshly. Keep your eyes open, or in unknown territory. Damn, Sarge, the LT knows what he's doing. The Marines gestured to the rear where the lieutenant was. Mulls looked back, spotting the Lieutenant Carruths flipping over a map. Mulls shook his head as he watched the antics of the lieutenant. Does that idiot know that this area is not mapped? Finally, unable to bear the embarrassment the lieutenant was causing the rest of the platoon— Mills went up to Karrath and gently took the map away from his hands. Sir, this area is not mapped. You can't find anything in this. B- what? Lieutenant Carrath looked in surprise. Why didn't you tell me this earlier? You made me look like a fool. He hissed at Mills angrily. Mills sighed. Sir, I think we should stop and retrace our steps back to the wreck. We've been out of radio contact for at least sixteen hours. No! We came so far already to give up and HQ ordered us to follow the tracks. Lieutenant Carath stubbornly replied, Sir, we have no lines of supply nor communications. HQ most likely has dispatched another platoon to look for us. Mills replied, We need to reestablish comms as a priority. No, our mission stands. Carrath glared at Sergeant Mills. Sergeant, do your duty and don't teach me how to do my job. We continue on. "'All right, enough slacking around. Let's move on!' "'Karaths brushed past Mills and yelled at the rest of the marines, "'who grumbled and continued on, followed by the point men. "'Mills closed his eyes and counted down to one, "'cooling his temper before he turned and followed the rest of his men, "'muttering under his breath, "'Don't make me shoot you behind your back-jerk!' "'Camp Alpha, Commandant's Office.' "'Major Frank frowned as he looked at the screen of his computer,' He picked up a handset and kicked Master Sergeant Pike's communicator. Top, what's the news with the Missing Alpha Company's platoon? Major, we lost contact with them roughly eighteen hours ago. They were supposed to report in every two hours, but as the area has no radio coverage, the communication operations did not sound the alert till just now, Pike replied. Damn, send out a search party and request for air support from the Air Force, Frank ordered. Who's leading the lost platoon? Lieutenant Carrath's Rivaria, ranked 49 out of 175 officer cadets in Class 2. Decent grades and command scores, Pike replied as he forwarded the dossier of Carrath's over to Frank from his workstation at Sawtooth Mountain Command. His instructor's comments were that he's quite mission focused and likes to follow the book to the letter. I see, Frank nodded. Send a search party out, let her alive, find them. "'Sawtooth Mountain, Air Force Base Dragon Pen 2. Quicksilver was happily chomping away at a giant stainless steel bowl. This was more like a tub. He licked the insides of his bowl clean, smacking his lips as he swallowed the remains of the fried potatoes, cheese, and tomato sauce. Mm mmm, now that is a meal worthy of a dragon!' "'Right, right, Blue Thunder stuck his head over from his own pen, "'and he licked his chomps after finishing his own serving of cheese fries. "'And I can eat, just eat these all day.' "'Quicksilver gave a burp and looked up at Blue Thunder. "'How's the wing?' "'Still sore.' "'Blue gave a dramatic sigh while wiggling his wounded wing "'still with patches of X-shaped duct tapes. "'But he eating, just need more meat.' Glazed and roasted with teriyaki sauce. <laughs> oh my, Blue Thunder swallowed a mouthful of saliva as he remembered the exquisite tasting teriyaki glazed meat. Oh, I hunger for some now. You and your bottomless, soul tummy. Quicksilver sighed as he saw Blue Thunder's eyes glaze over as he drooled on the day he dreamt about his meat. You should heal up first. Hey, quick! Some yellow jackets and green jackets crew came over. You're up for a mission, huh? Quicksilver looked over to the crew and started to unload the harness from his storage bins. I thought I'm off duty now. The air boss wants you to go, Flight Corporal Pera replied as he walked in with Private Gotha in the Dragon Hanger pen. It's about the shipwreck from yesterday. What about it? Quicksilver asked, while Blue Thunder curiously listened from his side. Didn't the marines go and check it out? Yeah, they did, but those marines went missing— Berra replied as he wore his own body harness. Quicksilver stood up and waded over to the marked drawn on the ground, where the yellow and green jacket crews had laid out harnesses. He placed his arms and legs in the proper loops and the crew swarmed over his body, securing the straps and buckles together. How did they get lost? Ruth under asked as he leaned his massive head against the stack of machinery. "'Hey!' one of the yellow jackets yelled. "'Get your fat-ass head off my equipment!' You want the chief to cut your meat rations? Oh, sorry. Blue Thunders meekly apologized and shifted his head away from the machinery, which groaned when the heavy weight was on it lifted away. <laughs> Don't tell the chief. Ugh. The angry crewman went over to check the machinery, and sighed with relief as the engine of the crane system only looked dented with the war still working. You want us to get chewed out by the chief? <laughs> sorry. Blue Thunder hit his head back into his own pen. "'Anyway, what happened to the Marines?' "'Not sure,' Bearer yelled at the back of Quicksilver. "'We're going to go find out.' "'Okay, take care. Give me the full details when you guys return, okay?' Blue Thunder spoke as the pack of Quicksilver, who crawled out of the dragon hangar towards the runway. "'Be careful.' Quicksilver gave a flap of his tail as acknowledgement, as before long he took off from the runway, bouncing off into the skies. I'm bored, Ruth undersighed as he leaned his head down between these arms, and craving meat. Dear Waiyaki. Skies over the Goblin Coast en route to the wreck. "'Dumb manies!' Greg the goblin giggled as he sat in the oversized bucket seat, facing rows of irritated marines. "'See? No listen to great Greg. Now dumb Manny's lost in forest. "'Ah, <laughs> oh, someone shut the damn garden up!' Someone yelled. "'Damn thing keeps yelping away!' "'Oh, dumb manies want a piece of Greg?' Greg sneered. "'Careful dumb manies, walk home later. <laughs> "'God, it's like some weird-ass slapstick pea-gray comedy show.' Corporal Coying sighed as he heard his platoon mates throw insults back and forth to the goblin crew. Come on, I'm trying to catch some sleep, guys. Luckily, the heated exchange did not last long as the pilot's voice came over the intercom. All right, kids, we're over the AO now. Five minutes. The lieutenant nervously yelled out, All right, people, check your gear. Coying sighed, Hope nothing goes to crap and Platoon 1 is just lost and not in combat. The men suddenly fell gravely disperated as they yelled out, in some fright, others in enjoyment as the pilot dropped the Valkyrie towards the ground in a combat dive, a combat maneuver to rapidly reduce little and also to get to the ground as fast as possible, to avoid taking enemy fire or radar locks in combat situations. But most of the time, the pilots liked to do that as it gave them a kick out of making their cargo puke. The cabin light turned green and Greg happily smashed the rear door hatch button, dropping the ramp down, and yelling from his position, "'Go and die, dumb Mannies, Go, 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 go!' The men rapidly unbuckled themselves and charged out into the ramp in order, while Coing unhooked the supports holding his partner in the cabin. ASAG05, nicknamed Tags, which was laden with supplies, happily bounced out of the Valkyrie, following Coing as they took a kneeling position." Walking and getting dirty is so dumb. Only gods fly. By dumb manies.'" End of Chapter Chapter one hundred and seventy two Chains of Command Far Harbour, Pier Fury. Fleetmaster de John looked at the pitiful few ex slaves that were willing to follow them back to the isles inside. The transport ship was able to carry over five hundred men and women, yet barely a tenth of the passenger hold would be used. He sighed and glanced out to the sea, seeing dozens of longboats ferrying his men and supplies to the ships anchored offshore. "'Fleetmaster!' his first mate called out as he walked barefoot towards Dijon and gestured to the pier, compliments of the princess. Dijon looked down at the decks of his flagship and saw dozens and dozens of crates were being delivered by workers. He strolled down the gangplank and gestured to some of his crew to open the crates and follow each crate was filled with glassware." The harbour master dressed in a strange shingle-piece clothing said, Sir, the princess offers you this glassware in compensation for the number of freed slaves. It's the least she can offer you, she said. The John checked another few more crates, finding each crate containing at least forty sets of glass goblets. He gave a low whistle, as the quality and the clarity of the glass was beyond anything they have, matching or even surpassing the master artisans at home and in a greater quantities too. He mentally calculated the value, estimating that a single glass goblet could probably sell for around two to three gold coins, meaning the stacks of crates would be worth its weight of a small ship. "'Thank the mistress for me,' to John grinned, thinking that maybe he did not lose out as much of all this trip. "'I'll look forward to coming back for another visit.' "'Please do, sir,' the harbour master bowed. "'We will greatly appreciate and welcome your visits. Swift winds and calm seas.' Swift winds and calm seas, John replied, gesturing to his men to carefully load the crates of glassware to the ship, before he glanced at the distance with white stone building. I will be back. UNS Singapore Command Bridge Captain, Far Harbor reports the Isle Fleet has left our waters. The communications officer reported from his station. Harbor security is doing a sweep of the area to ensure no stragglers were left behind. Blake nodded. "'Put me through to Major Frank, please.' "'Aye. Stand by, sir.' "'The communication officer tapped several keys "'before the screen in front of Blake lit up "'with a connecting vidlink text. "'Soon Major Frank's image appeared in the screen and saluted. "'Captain?' "'How's the search going?' Blake asked. "'Frank frowned. "'No news yet. "'I have dragons dropping active radio transmitters "'with a cable down into the canopy of the forest "'and only having my search party replying.' a missing platoon is still not responding to our hails. Dab, could they have been wiped out by monsters, "'or same thing that took the sailors?' Blake asked worriedly. "'Sir, we found tracks of a campfire and orc tracks,' Frank replied, "'and tracks of the missing platoon too, "'so far all indicating that they were following the orc tracks. "'It's been more than thirty-six hours since they went missing,' Blake sighed. "'Step it up. If not, call off the search and I'll leave it to your judgment.' "'Yes, Captain.' Frank nodded before Blake closed the connection. Damn, always one crap after another. Blake leaned his head back. Captain, Commander Ford spoke up from his workstation. You need to take a break. Well, when we have no crap happening, I'll take a break, Blake sighed. There's just too much to do, and everything has risks. Well, at least the slime plant is on track now, Ford grinned. Ah, slime plant. Who came up with such a horrible naming? Blake groaned at Ford's reminder. Well, the processes slimes were used in various industries, Ford replied. Don't forget, you and the princess are supposed to be there tomorrow morning for the opening ceremony. Ugh. Can't you go in my stead, Blake asked. I'll take the double shift in exchange. Nope. You're the big boss, Ford winked. And besides, your girlfriend is there. Damn, Blake cursed Ford. All right. Anyway, what's the assessment of the shipwreck? Ford checked the tablet before replying. Well, we sent a couple of teams down to check it out. Looks like it's still intact, except for a couple holes just below the waterline. Most of the equipment is still on board, except for the ship's charts, Ford added. Yes, they are smart enough to remove any maps. Lake nodded. Is it salvageable? Have Chief Matt go take a look at one of the teams, Ford nodded. He says that we just need to unload all the heavy stuff on board, like the stabilizers, catapults, ballast, and other supplies to lighten the ship. Next, he said, we can attach the deployable floats from the lifeboats and wait for the tide to float the ship out, as it is stuck in the rocks. Do it, Blake gave his approval, but I do not want the islanders to know what we are doing. Make sure none of the ships are nearby when we float that ship. Find us keepers, Ford gave a suggestion. I mean, they should have salvaged rules in the sea here, right? We don't know, Blake answered, so play it safe. And if we can repair and upgrade that wreck, it'll be useful in the future. Ford nodded. That's why you told the princess not to mention them when we found the missing ship. Yep, make grinned, cause I wanted to steal it. <laughs> Somewhere in the forest northeast of the wreck. "'Contact!' someone yelled as a harsh bark of an M1 mage lock roared out, sending a stab of flames into the dwindling darkness. "'Incoming!' Yelps and shrieks suddenly rang out in the dark forest twilight as goblins rushed out of the undergrowth, ambushing the tired and lost marines. "'Form up! Give a defensive circle!' Lieutenant Carance yelled as he looked around in confusion at the dark figures. "'Lights! Give me some flares!' He yelled next to the platoon mage who threw up some magical flares that lit up the surroundings. No! Mules yelled from his platoon as he saw what the lieutenant ordered. The pitiful few lights popped into existence, providing a soft, warm glow that clearly exposed the goblins, but also the marines within the magical glow. The goblins screamed in delight as they saw the highlighted marines under the glow and rushed forward. Their eyesight clearly more superior in the dark compared to the elves who tried to filter out which were shadows and which were goblins in the dim glow. Frick Mills cried as he fired point-blank goblin as it appeared to grow out from a bush. Back, he ordered, form a firing line here! The men followed his orders, backpedaling as they fired at anything that moved. move, while Karatz was running the other men onto the other flank. Suddenly, Mills heard Karatz calling for a charge, and he was stupefied a charge into the dark against unknown numbers. Is he crazy? He saw men of Section 1 and 2, with a few others from Section 3 and 4 rush forward, screaming a war cry and slamming into the surprised goblins for a moment. It looked like the charge worked in the Marine's favor, till suddenly a Marine screamed and his broken body flew over the heads of the rest of the crumbled against a tree. A large shadow stepped into the magical glow, resolving into the forest troll. Troll! Some men yelled. RPG! Bills turned and yelled at the nearest marine with the RPG-1 on his back. Quick, take on that troll or they'll all be butchered. The marine and his buddy quickly yanked the tube and crouched down while the rest hurried away and back blast and provided a cover for the team. Run round away! The heat! Rocket screamed out and impacted on the troll, blowing its arm, causing it to bellow in anger and pain. Reload! The angered troll hammered its fist in a slow-moving marine, beating him to a pulp while the others fired at it and tried to retreat, only to have a giggling goblin sneaking in to stab or poke. "'Lieutenant, what do we do?' Someone yelled as a stunned Carathus, who stared open-mouthed at the troll ravaging his men. "'Sir! Um, hit it with rockets! Yes, the RPGs!' Caroth blinked rapidly as he turned around looking for marines with RPGs. "'Quick!' "'Crap!' Mills cursed as he saw Karaths panicking. Come on, guys, hit it again, and don't miss. You! Mills ran out to the orc machine gunner. Ignore the troll, suppress the goblins instead. The orc nodded his helmeted head, and resting the bipod of his MG 1 on the tree root and fired, sending bright arcs in traces into the undergrowth. Up! The RPG team yelled as they aimed the weapon at the one armed troll. One round away, and the rocket impaled itself in the hard belly of the troll before it blew up, ripping the troll into two halves. The troll continued to scream and struggle on the ground as its lifeblood slowly drained away. By then, it was too late. More than half of the platoon were dead or dying, with the remaining half with wounds of various degrees. Despite the death toll of the troll, the goblins, like sharks sensing blood, rushed in wave after wave, shrieking wildly and waving crude weapons and retreating marines. Frick this! Mules cursed as he fired his weapon mechanically. The of Goblins were like an endless, popping out of the shadows every now and then. Back! Hold the line, Carath yelled suddenly. Hold the line! What? moles paused and turned to look at the lieutenant. What is he trying to do now? We leave no man behind, Karatz yelled again. Send your ground, kill those green scum! Is he serious? Mules felt like he was dreaming. Crap! "'Belay that order!' Moles roared angrily, and the remaining marines looked confused. "'Sir, we need to pull back and regroup!' Moles yelled at Carrath as he made his way over to the reloading his weapon. "'We are outnumbered and blind here. No!' "'We hold the line. We'll not leave the bodies of our brothers to the green scum!' Carrath stubbornly cried, his M2 against his shoulder as he fired at anything that moved in front of him. "'You serious?' Mill's looked at the wide-eyed Karath. "'We need to fall back. Your impulsive charge nearly killed everyone. The goblins will overrun us.' "'Coward!' Karath screamed at Mill's. "'You humans think that you're so smart, but when it comes to fighting, you're all first to run.' "'What did you say?' Mill's expression turned cold. "'You want to repeat that again?' "'Coward!' "'Sergeant, I'm charging you with insubordination.' Karaths continued to scream at Moles. I am busting you back to private. Get out of my sight. The surrounding men turned to look at each other, confusion on their faces. Sir, I don't think this is the time for the- Shut up, private. You want me to charge you with some subordination too? Karaths turned and screamed at the marine. Enough, Moles yelled. Lieutenant Karatz, I relieve you, sir. Under the authority of paragraph 1088 of the Naval Regulations, for your reckless hazarding of your command, I assume full responsibility with this and will forward a complete report to the next higher command. With witness statements from all concerned, you will stand down as the commanding officer and remain escorted until such time as you are notified otherwise. Corporal, Mills barked to the surprise of the men around him, take the lieutenant's weapons, assign someone to watch over him. Lieutenant, I hope you cooperate as we are under combat situation now. Do not make it worse. What? You are leaving me of command? Karath's eyes looked even wider than before. You have no authority, coward. Take him, Corporal, Mills sighed, then rest watch your sectors, prepare to move out. You, you... Karatz looked like he was going to have a heart attack. So, the corporal gently removed Karatz's rifle and his sidearm before gesturing the private to his scalded earlier to look over him. Wells quickly reorganized the remaining men into two sections. One, pull back fifty meters and hold. Two, provide support, he commanded, and the men pulled back in a tactical withdrawal. Back! Move it! End of chapter Chapter 173 Meetings. UNS Singapore Conference Room. Output of our current mines has risen by a total of 4%, while saltpeter output has dropped by 12% as military demand for saltpeter has dropped. We are reallocating manpower from the saltpeter mines over to the mines. Estimated transfer of manpower will roughly take three working weeks. Chief Engineer Gale reported. A third of all of our M1 Mage Locks have been recalled back to the factory for retooling and the newest 65 millimeter smokeless cartridges and will be issued back to the frontline troops first, while the militia will still use the original black powder M1s till the Marines have all switched over to the new ammunition. Production of the new smokeless propellant is moving smoothly, but we had a couple accidents. Thankfully, all minor injuries. Chief Gale paused and looked down towards Dr. Sharon. Dr. Sharon and my team have worked out some SOPs and safety measures for the workers in the factory. We will also be conducting more safety courses to ensure workplace safety for all those workers in the entire production sector. Also, the new slime factory is processing slime for use as raw materials as scheduled today at 1100 hours. Chief Gale gave a nod to Captain Blake and the Princess. The new factory will be able to process up to four tons of slime a day, with more room to expand should we need it. Slime captured or harvested will be gutted, cleaned, sterilized, and sorted out to either food, product, or raw material, Chief Gale explained, the purpose of the slime factory to those that were clueless about its usage. Slimes like the green and yellow variants will be dried and processed into food. Honey slimes will be sterilized and milked for its nectar, while black slimes found in the northern swamps will be sun-dried and aired, before being processed into bio-rubber. Bio-rubber was made by using the rubber-like bodies of the black slimes, stacked together and heat-bonded, before they're shaped into tires, caskets, soles, or linings of many other products. The demands for black slimes rocketed, and teams of hunters ventured into the swamps to hunt for slimes while farmers attempted to breed the black slimes in their own backyards. Blake gave a nod. We will be there for the opening. What else? The vehicle factory output currently far exceeds our needs, so I might cut production to half. We have sufficient vehicles like trucks, tractors, buses, harvesters, jeeps, and half-tracks to support the population of fewer than 10,000 people, not to mention the need for buyer rubber for tires, Gell added. On the other hand, the market for consumer products has risen and I most likely will focus on that instead. Okay, work with the princess on the population needs the most, Blake replied. Next. sir, so, I had the boys come over the entire ship and found dozens of hairline cracks in the main structural frame of the ship, Matt said as Gale finished his report. The ship took quite a beating when it landed, but firing the main cannons finally cracked the spine of the old lady. What can we do? Blake asked. Either we refrain from firing the guns, or we replace the main structural frame and with patches, which will barely do any good once you fire the guns again. Alternatively, we can remove the guns and sight them down a stable ground. Matt listed out his suggestions. Give me a detailed report, Blake replied. I'll take a look later. My team has fully surveyed the shipwreck and we will be salvaging operations in three days, once the isle's fleets have left the area, Matt said, we will strap the secured and self-inflating flotation devices we salvage from the lifeboat and wait for high tide before we attempt to float the ship out. Pumps will be installed to pump out any flooding from the bottom hull. Great. Make sure the isles don't spot the wreck, Blake said. I don't want them to claim it. Magister Thorne gave a cough. I will have my best students cast a shimmering spell over the wreck before the isle's ships can spot it. I will also be there to oversee it, Thorn gave a grin. always wanted to pirate a ship. <laughs> the people around the table laughed and smiled at Thorn's joke before Blake gestured for them to cool down and listen to Matt's report. Matt nodded. Next, Ordnance has come up with a new weapon, a simple dual-purpose breech-loading cannon, 3-inch, 23-monoblock gun designed using a vertically sliding breech block, firing a 76.2-millimeter or 3-inch shell. It can be mounted on fixed pedestal or field carriage. So far, tests result in quite favorable. Its range of firing is at forty-five degree angle, and it can land at five point nine kilogram shell at seven thousand three hundred fifteen meters away. Matt read off the numbers from his notes as the displayed screen showed a video clip of the weapon being test fired at an anti-air angle of seventy-five degrees. Laser calculation recorded a shell reaching heights of five thousand one hundred eighty-one point six meters. That's pretty impressive, Blake whistled. Give my thanks to the team. Matt nodded and continued. The R&D on the fast craft is still proceeding and the team is currently testing out one to ten scale models. Once the results are refined, they should be starting on the next step of the testing. Good. We need at least some presence in the waters around us, Blake grinned. With that light gun, we can at least have more firepower on the field or at sea against large sailing ships like that the Isles have. sir. So, why not develop torpedoes? One of the naval department heads asked. Won't it be more devastating against their ships? Yes, it will, but we know nothing of building torpedoes, and the amount of resources we need when developing a torpedo is not worth it, as it can only be used at sea, Blake explained to clarify the doubts of his people. On a dual-purpose like gun, it can be used at sea, land, and against air targets. Also, mounting a light gun and takes up less space than a torpedo, Matt added. A three-inch gun can carry more ammunition than a torpedo launcher, and sink or damage more ships per gun than what a single torpedo launcher can do. All clear? Blake looked around the table. Good. Okay, what else do we have? Magister Thorne? Dr. Sharon? Captain? Magister Thorne stood up and gave a slight bow. Dr. Sharon and I have actually discovered something strange and disturbing about the origins of the hero. What is it? Blake frowned when he heard what it was about the hero. We're unsure as of it now, Major Thorne replied. But we would like to request that some help in finding out more before we release the information. What help do you need? Commander Ford asked. We need some people to help with that research, doctor Sharon spoke up. I would like access to the HR records. You need HR records, Blake looked at Ford in confusion. Okay, sure. Thank you, doctor Sharon replied. We'll give you a full report once we have finished our investigations. Um, okay. Next. Blake looked up round the table. Sir, Major Frank spoke, search operations for the missing platoon are still ongoing, but there were reports of what appeared to be gunfire, therefore the platoon is most likely engaged in combat. I took the liberty of deploying a third platoon for support into the area, and also increased the search radius. Okay, keep me updated, Blake nodded. Master Sergeant Pikers also revised the troops' loadout to maximize their firepower out in the field after the incident with the hero. Frank loaded up a chart in the main display for everyone to view. 1st and 2nd Battalion will be reorganized into the following. 3 infantry companies, 1 weapon support company and 1 motorized support company. Infantry companies will have an HQ company and 4 riflemen platoons. Frank further retailed. Each rifle platoon will have one additional machine gun section attached. Previously each platoon only had four seven man sections. Each section will now consist of an anti tank and an assistant anti tank, a grenadier, a marksman and a point man, and finally the section IC and two IC. Ran Frank continued. Machine gun sections will be three man team, consisting of an IC, machine gunner, and assistant gunner. An ASAG will also be supporting the MG section. Under the support company, four hundred and twenty millimeter mortar platoons with three mortars in each platoon will provide heavy fire support for the battalion, while the motorized support company provides logistical support for the battalion. Rake nodded. Looks good. When will it be implemented? Within a month or longer, Frank replied, depending on how fast we resolve the current issue with the missing platoon. I'd like to nominate a whole claim or one for a silver Valacross, another one of the merit awards. Frank pushed the list of receptions and nominations over to Blake, also a few outstanding Marines. Blake nodded and looked towards Commander Tommy. What's the Air Force status now? We lost two pilots and three aircraft from the fight with the hero, Tommy reported. Our current manning is at 27 FA-1 Cobras and 6 T-1 training craft. The T-1 training craft were the original two-seater prototypes that were improved and turned into trainers for the pilot and trainers. I am also recommending Blue Thunder and his crew for a Silver Valor and also confer them the title of Ace Pilots for the efforts for taking down six confirmed aerial dragon kills. Tommy handed over a list of names to Blake. As for the injured Blue Thunder, he is recovering well and will be fight-capable in a couple weeks. Next, we are working on a heavy rotor lifter, Tommy added. We were designing a helicopter that would allow us to transport troops and supplies. The Valkyries are overworked at the moment, and if any one of them goes down, or is down for maintenance, our lift capabilities will be seriously screwed. Not only that, we are looking at designs a cargo plane for short-haul air transportation purposes, Tommy said. This will be useful not only for the military, but also for the industrial and civilian sectors in our future. Also, we are working on a parachute course for the marines, Tommy gave a nod towards rank. It'll improve our combat reach in the future. Great work, people. Good initiative all around, Blake grinned. How's the civil side, princess? Rebuilding the city is still underway, the princess replied. Shelters and civilians are also being planned out. On agriculture, we are expecting large, bountiful harvest, and with the new harvesting tractors, we do not expect a large spoilage, so food will not be a problem for the winter this year. Also, there is a trade agreement with the Isles. We will be able to start our own fishing industry, which will also increase our sources of food. Shireen read off her notes. There has been some unrest due to the damages the city caused by the cannons, but we managed to pacify the affected parties. Shireen looked up from her notes and said, Issues now is it the production of winter clothing. Matt and Gail, can you work out a heating system to the city? Blake asked. Or some heating stoves for those outside the city grid? And also, see if you can't start up a proper clothing manufacturing process. We got, like, five months roughly before it's winter. Work with it with the princess on it. Got it, Captain, the two nodded. Anything else? Blake asked. Quartermaster Chen raised a hand up. Sir, I have a proposal here. Go, Blake gestured to Chen to speak. Sir? The has actually left a small trail of destruction directly in the uncharted forest, Chen said, and pulled up some UAV imagery on the screen, which showed the blue-green canopy of the forest and a somewhat pencil-straight line of destruction could be clearly seen from over the top view. While it's not a single straight line from Sawtooth Path to Mountain of Foliage, it at least covers a third or more of the distance. Look, what I'm saying here is that we can actually make use of this destruction to carve a highway into the forest. End of chapter. Chapter one hundred and seventy-four. Getting out. Frick! Mel's yelled. As a bolt of greenish magical energy blazed past his ear, he paused to turn around and fire in the direction of the shaman who cast the spell. In the dark, he doubted he was able to hit anything, but it should make the goblin duck for cover. He hoped. Come on, someone yelled, and a mirage machine gun fire erupted from somewhere in front of Mills. the bright traces leaving soft globes of light in his eyes. The machine gun appeared to suppress the chasing goblins as Mills heard the shrieks and cries of the goblins fading behind him as he ran. Hopping over the tree trunk, Mills leaned against the tree and took a breather, before yelling, Report, Section 1 and 2. Shouts slowly drifted from the forest as men shouted at each other passing words along the strung-out marines. The machine gunner kept the fire in short briefs, keeping the goblins at bay while word travelled back to Mills. "'Section 1 and 2 both have men missing. Frick!' Mills cursed under his breath, meaning now he was only thirteen men, including him. Lieutenant is one of the ones missing.' Mills gave a deep breath as he looked at the spent men. They had been running for several hours in a straight night, while chased by goblins.' We hold up here, we're on a slight raise in the terrain and have a nice lines of fire. And with the ruckus we're making, I'm sure search parties from HQ should have heard us by now. Once they get into contact with us, we regroup, resupply and return back for the Fallen. The men, most of them veterans fighting in the past, nodded. Take this time to quickly clean your weapons too, Mills added, and rotate the MG gunner. Mills peered out over the route, but in the pitch dark of the forest, he barely could make out anything. Crap! And here I was so freaking proud that I made sergeant. Should have stayed a corporal and remained a camp as a trainer. Freaking hell! Shrieks, yelps, and giggles were soon heard again as the goblins regrouped. Mills checked his watch, barely an hour had passed. Watch your front, boys! Marines! When you go to interesting places, what do you do? Meet interesting people. And what do you do? We kill them. Hoorah! Goblin Coast shipwreck. Watch your step, one of the techs warned as the chief engineer, Matt, gripped the rope ladder and pulled his way up, grunting as he made his way up. Hands gripped the body and pulled in over the railing on board the deck of the ship. He stood carefully on the slanted deck as the ship was tilting to the side at an angle. A massive groan came from the ship as a wave slammed into it, and met felt the whole ship shifting slightly. He ran his hand along the wooden hull of the sailing ship, observing the lines in the workmanship while taking a tour to the top deck. The main mast of the 2 masted ship had two-thirds of its length snapped away, most likely falls by the storm. Chief, good to see you. A deck came up and started to report the progress. The ship was quite similar to the Terran brig, judging by the number of masts and the type of square rigging they use, we cleared away any remains of the rest of the sails to prevent winds from toppling or shifting the wreck or more. That master must have broken off in the storm and dragged the ship towards the land before the sailors could cut it off, and the captain must have ordered his men to abandon ship. The text said, we searched the captain's quarters for maps or any entail, only finding diaries and some personal effects, most likely thrown overboard or carried away by the captain. Most of the ship's store is missing, and so are the weapons like swords and crossbows. The tech continued as it toured the captain's room, We suspected that they took all the food, water, and weapons before abandoning the ship. The captain's quarters were quite spacious, with a large work desk and a high-backed chair. With the back facing the large shuttered window openings, a couple of sea chests took up a corner of the room next to a messy bed against the wall. A wet, moldy smell came from that sad-looking animal skin, serving as a carpet, while the wall-mounted cupboards covered the remaining wall. Anything of interest here? Matt asked as he pushed out another shutters of the window, letting in fresh air to air out the cabin, and light flooded in. We've cleared every item and swept the entire cabin for hidden compartments, using metal detectors, echo sounding, and even with magic. We did find a hidden compartment magically locked under the animal skin, but it was empty, The tech used his booted feet to peel the skin back and tapped on the spot with a wooden plank. Students from the academy spent a couple hours cracking the magic lock. Well, they were pretty excited at first, but it turns out to be empty. I see. The student's still here? Matt asked as he looked into a small compartment roughly the size of a shoebox. Yes, chief, they're casting a ritual to create fog to hide the wreck from the isle ships. The tech gestured to outside the ship. Good. Make sure they have everything that they need. The Isles' fleet should be less than a day away. They most probably won't come within sight of land, but it pays to be safe. Matt straightened up and walked out of the captain's quarters. Show me the damages to the hull. This way, Chief. The tech led Chief Matt down to the cargo hold, and portable lights had been set up at intervals, lit up the interior. An engine roar grew louder as they passed a couple of ballistas on their mounts and shut its gun ports tightly closed to prevent sprays of the waves from getting into the main deck. A V-9 radial engine rumbled on a stand attached to the capacitor with cables snaking off into various locations on board the ship, provided the power to the lights and water pumps that hummed and sucked out the seawater, flooding the ships through the two areas, the hold and the crew quarters in the bow. "'Here, chief, this is the hold,' The texture before the hatch cordoned off by the yellow warning tape. But where the steps, they're slippery. He bent under the tape and carefully climbed down the wet, slimy wooden stairs. The hold had several rotten barrels and crates sitting ankle-deep in seawater, and the smell of the sea and rot was very thick. Sounds of crashing waves had groaned of the ship like they were in pain could be constantly be heard over the power generator upstairs. It was almost at chest height when we first came in. The tech explained, as he pointed to the gaping hole at the side where the glistening seaweed and barnacle-covered rocks could clearly be seen jutting in. The rig light showed the damage clearly. The splintered hull with a hole only a meter wide and 30 centimeters tall had seawater splashing in every few seconds. Now that it's almost low tide, if it was high tide, this area would be chest height with water. We cover up that hole with a space foam once it's low tide, the tech added, and we will continue to pump out the remaining water after that. We will attach the floats and deploy them. The stab-resistant material of the floats will be more than able to handle the reefs and the rocks here. Once the high tide comes, the ship will be able to float out. This way, the tech continued on, we check the crates and barrels, all of them are either biscuits or some sort of salted fish, meat and fresh water. Most of them are already contaminated with seawater, not sure if we can still use them. We are removing everything that is not bolted down to lighten the ship up now. The tech led Matt through another hatch and into four crew quarters at the bow. Light from outside flooded in through the hull as another tear in the hull, large enough for a fully grown man to climb through. Spray from the waves splashed in and flowed down towards them as the bow of the ship was actually slightly angled towards the sky allowing Matt to see the horizon through the hole. If it's high tide, the water comes in more, the deck explained. Oh, the guys are here to fix the hole. A couple of techs carrying what appeared to be a red cylinders on their backs entered their crew cabin and saluted Chief Matt, who nodded and gestured them to continue their work. They started spraying the quick-drying space foam over the hole with a nozzle attached to the tanks of space foam used to quickly patch holes in spaceships. They sprayed both the outside and inside of the hull as well, to create as much of a perfect seal as possible, and within ten minutes they were done. After spraying two coatings of foam to ensure that the foam sticks to the wet hull, Matt tapped the dried foam and the hardened into a rigid substance and nodded. Good work! Now we wait for the isle ships to pass by us before we float this baby home. So, how are we gonna float by Far Harbor? One of the techs with the space foam asked. We got nothing to tow it back. Are we going to sail it back? Yeah, chief. I know we did all the basic sailing courses back on Earth, but I doubt anyone remembers anything from the course anymore. The other tech spoke up. Oh, that's easy, Matt grinned. You saw those V-9 radial engines I brought along with me. The men nodded remembering the pile of equipment the Valkyries left in earlier. When we float the lady out, we're going to jerry-rig engines onto the side of the hull. Most likely from the gun ports, and attached the paddle wheels that I had specifically made. Matt winked at his astonished men. We're going to paddle back and we don't need sails. When the search platoon came into contact with the 1st Battalion Bravo Company, Platoon 1, they found dozens and dozens of dead goblins littering around the last stand of the last platoon. Thunder! A white man in the search party yelled from covered trees. Flash! A tired yell replied to Point Man as he cautiously came out of cover and climbed over the bodies of the dead goblins. "'Hey, glad to see you guys join the party!' The soot-covered marine sergeant covered in wounds called out from a small mound of dead goblins. Dodge The Point Man looked at the terrifying face of the three-striped human covered in blood, gore and black powder residue. He looked around the area and found several more wounded marines— all covered in wounds and surrounded with dead goblins on all sides. Help us on its way! The man turned to yell out, Medic! We need medics here! You guys alright? Just peachy private, Mulls grinned tiredly, as he used his broken M1 rifle, breaking it when he ran out of ammo and he swung it around like a baseball bat after his sword bayonet had snapped off. He braced himself up from the dead goblins he laid on after exhausting all of his strength fighting off wave after wave of goblins. He looked at the rest of the surviving members of the lost platoon and laughed. Those that survived joined him and started laughing and cheering too. They saw dozens of marines emerge from the undergrowth. Nothing beats starting a day killing goblins, sleeping on their bodies, and the smell of fresh blood. End of chapter 175 We all float UNS Singapore Command Bridge Captain, Isles' fleet's currently on an east heading 106 kilometers away from the wreck. Operator reported from the station. The fleet has just passed the point breaker and heading towards Point Charlie. Estimate time of arrival, 7 hours, 48 minutes. Commander Ford traced his finger on the tactical table plot, measuring the distance between the fleet and the wreckage, and nodded. Sir, we can begin salvage operations. The islanders shouldn't be able to see what we're doing at this distance. "'Do it,' Rake ordered. "'But make sure that the work team has safety precautions.' "'Aye, Captain,' the operator turned back to his station "'and started issuing instructions. "'Lucky we managed to recover the lost platoon,' Ford sighed "'as he traced his finger up the digital map on the table, "'tapping the spot with a forested area. "'We haven't fully mapped out nor explored this area yet.' "'Blake joined Ford at the table and leaned both arms on it. "'He looked at the map and the surroundings.' We only barely managed to survey and explore the radius of roughly 200 kilometers around the colony, and roughly a 50 to 100 kilometer each post that we have out there, Blake indicated the mines, hydro dam, farms, and far harbor. We might need to do a proper mapping of our surroundings, but it is too manpower intensive if this area is forested, Ford replied, and manpower is something we can barely spare. Blake nodded. We really need to find more ways to resolve our manpower issues. "'How about getting more autonomous golems adapted to factories?' Ford replied. "'Automatic manufactories should reduce a lot of the manpower issues.' "'No. We only have one source of golems, and it's from the elementalist. Blake replied. "'Should anything happen to her, our industries will be crippled.' Ford nodded. "'Maybe we can get more slaves and free them.' "'Ugh. Where do we get the gold for that?' Blake sighed. "'Unless we strike directly at the slave market and free everyone.' But do we have the lift capabilities for an attack? Ford asked. Blake wrapped the table and looked at Ford. We need to prepare and plan for that scenario once we have the lift capabilities. Goblin Coast Shipwreck Chief Matt stood on the slanted deck surrounded by a thin layer of fog. He leaned over the railings and barely made out a few figures on the beach who had drawn up several spell formations, which were active currently. Tendrils of fog drifted out of the center of the spar formation and covered the surrounding areas with layers of mist. Chief Matt nodded with satisfaction at the fog created by the students, knowing that it would be effectively cover their salvaging operations from prying eyes. He turned to his men and said, "'Start securing the ship and load bearing straps. Once the isle fleet is out of range, we can prepare to float the ship.' "'Aye, chief,' the men excitedly start their work. "'Check the lines.' The weapons on board had been removed and tossed overboard before being dragged to ashore. The remaining stores and furniture were too removed and dumped overboard. Several techs dressed in their EVA's spacesuits less all the accessories like maneuvering thrusters and dropped into the water under the barnacle-infested bottom of the ship's hull before being secured through the opening wide rectangle of ports. The tech's underworld worked carefully and slowly due to the force of the waves and the dangers of getting crushed between the hull of the ship and the rock reef. They also had to be careful of the razor-sharp barnacles and the shellfish that covered the surfaces of the rocks and hull. It had taken the men in the EVA suits a couple of hours to wrap four sets of load-bearing straps under the ship and once they were done, packets of self-inflating foam were dropped into the straps, and carefully secured to the straps and strategic locations. The other crew members spent their time ensuring that the timber on the main deck of the ship was solid, with two radial engines were then secured under the main deck and bolted to the wooden frame of the ship. The two sets of paddle wheels were then left on the top of the deck, waiting to be installed once the ship had been successfully refloated. "'Chief!' the tech yelled from the beach. "'HQ reports the island of Fleet has just passed Point Breaker,' We are cleared to commence salvage operations. Got it, Matt hollered back. Pack up the gear and be ready to embark on the ship. The rest activate the floats. Matt ordered and the men jumped to his orders. On the hull were four sets of load-bearing straps, each laddened with a single floating device on the sides. The men in the main deck pulled a tab linked to the devices and the CO2 canisters released the gas stored inside and the floats popped out from their packaging and enlarged into the bright orange pods. The ship tilted and groaned as the balance of the ship shifted on the rocks. Check the hull for any leaks, Matt yelled. Also check the floats, see if any have leaks too. The ship was a hive of activity as a small army of techs ran up and down the hatches verifying and double-checking the hull to ensure that everything was ship-shape. Soon the tide started to come in, and the ship groaned as it was carried up by the secured floats. Matt and his crew howled their breath as they all stood on the railings, looking at the floats rubbing against the rock reefs, hearing the scattering or squeaking of the floats. Everyone prayed and hoped that the floats would not burst or erupt from the rock reefs. Slowly, minute by minute, the squeaking of the floats disappeared, as the rock reefs vanished under the rising tide and the ship was freed. Yes! Matt, with his text, cheered wildly, some hugging and high-fiving each other. All right, phase one is done. Now for phase two. Matt turned around and yelled at the celebrating text. The hard part is over, but we still need to ensure the ship doesn't get beached or trapped to the rocks again. Bring the ship around to face the open sea, Matt ordered and one of the techs quickly manned the helm, spinning the steering wheel, turning the replace on the serviced rudder, forcing the ship's bow to point towards the open sea. Activate the CO2 canisters, Matt ordered once the ship was facing the right direction. The men yelled down the hatches and repeating Matt's orders to the techs and yanked two cords that were connected to a dozen canisters of CO2 strapped under the hull. The CO2 canisters released the gas in a burst of bubbles erupted out, The force of the bubbles escaped shoved the ship against the waves and tide, pushing the ship out towards the sea. One of the precious motion detectors were repurposed as a sonar used was a depth finder. The tech held the handheld device at the bow of the ship, yelling out the readings of the depth as the CO2 canisters shoved the ship further from the shore. Once the safe distance was achieved, Matt ordered an anchor to be dropped and the ship came to a slow halt. "'Good work, people!' "'Matt grinned at the excited team. "'All right, start installing the paddle wheels "'and contact the guys on the beach to row the boats over.' "'The two longboats and further two wooden dinghies "'were found hidden amongst the edge of the forest, "'covered with foliage, "'most likely dragged up on the beach by the original crew and hidden. "'The marines had discovered them, "'and the techs used the boats to ferry from the beach to the ship "'to carry gear up and down.' The beach party had loaded up all the essentials and equipment on board the boats and were waiting for the ship to be floated out before joining them out at sea. Matt grinned as he saw the men carefully lower the paddle wheels down onto the side of the ship, with ropes and hands stretched out from the gun ports of the main deck, underneath to grab the wheel before they attached the wheel to the steel shaft. Attack lowered himself down with ropes and used a power tool to bolt the wheel security to the power shaft. This process was repeated on the other side, and the boats from the beach are arrived, the grinning faces of the students to the deck, staring up the ship as they hollered excitedly. They paddled the boats to the side and the swing-out crane was pushed out with ropes and dropped over for them to secure the boat, with all the equipment and crates of supplies, which the men slowly hoisted the boats up one by one, before securing them to the deck. Matt looked at the men gathered on the deck, and they finished all their work, securing the boats and equipment. He grinned and said, All right, now is the final part of our plan. We're going to run the paddles and sail home. Hoist the anchor, make ready for sail. Now give me your best war cry. hurrah!" The human techs roared and laughed before they scampered to the stations, leaving the yells with a confused look on their faces. Is it a human thing to shout, Erg, before they set sail on a ship? Matt laughed as he heard the elven crew that said that. Power up the engines, he roared, as the men turned the capstan of the anchor, pulling up the heavy anchor. Suddenly, a cough and a purring roar of the engines and a slight vibration could be heard and felt as the twin engines powered up. Matt waited till the anchor was properly secured before he gave the next order. Engage the wheels. Give me a head slow. A head slow, aye. One of the tanks repeated and yelled down the order to the crew below. "'Ahead, slow!' The two-panel wheels started turning as the shaft was engaged and started to splash water, pushing the ship forward slowly. "'It's moving!' The men yelled, excited from the stations, as they peered out into the open gunports and window openings. Woohoo! Mac Matt grinned as he felt a slight breeze against his skin. "'Give me half full ahead! Half full ahead! Aye!' The ship started to pick up speed slowly gaining speed from one knot to a steady four knots. Matt went down to the main decks to check the engines and found most of the men had stripped away the top of the temperature rose from the heat created by the Dragonite-powered engines, despite the open gun ports and windows. Chief, the tech in charge of the engines frowned. We're just going at half speed. The engines are looking like they're going to overheat. Damn, Chief Matt looked around the deck. The airflow is not strong enough to cool the engines. At this rate, before we go ten kilometers, the engines will melt. The tech reported with a grim face. We need some way to cool them. Wait. Chief Matt snapped his fingers. I know just the thing. He turned quickly and climbed back up the hatch, leaving behind a clueless tech. Hey, kids! Chief Matt found a small group of students gathered at the bow of the ship, enjoying the view. I need your help. Chief, one of the students stepped forward. My name is Alza Glaston, a first year. I'm the leader of this party. What do you need our help with? Alza, I need you and your party to help create a magic formation that creates cold air. Cold air? Alza tilted her head with a brown hair tied in a bun. I think we can do that. But why? The engines are overheating, Matt explained. It's too hot and will overheat and break down. That is why we need to cool the engines down. I see. Alza nodded and looked at a party of four and smiled. Let's go solve the heat problem. End of chapter. Chapter one hundred and seventy-six. Deja vu. The Colony Academy of Science and Magic. Doctor Sharon sat alone on a workbench, staring at the broken golden amulet encased in a clear containment unit. The voices in her head grew louder and clearer the nearer she was to the artifact, and she felt a tingle of fear down her spine. Yet the academic part of her brain was calmly analyzing her situation. Ay, anar ando. "'Ay, Anar and do. Ay, Anar and do. Ay, Anar and do, "'Doctor!' someone suddenly shook her shoulder, making her jump. The voices that spoke in her head seemingly accompanied by troubled drums cut off, leaving her mind back to her own thoughts. "'Yes?' Dr. Sharon turned and saw a pretty red-haired female dressed in a grey-tack suit with stripes of petty officer first class, standing over her. "'Can I help you?' P.O. Christine reporting for duty, ma'am. Christine stood at attention. I was told that you needed some help with the history stuff. Oh, oh! Dr. Sharon rubbed her temples and her mind slowly recovered. At ease, sailor, and grab a seat. What help do you need me on? Christine asked as she dragged over the chair. Well, Dr. Sharon scrolled through her tablet and pulled up Christine's academic records from her service record folder. Says here you've majored in archaeology and history in Cambridge. What degree did you take it on, ancient history or modern? Yes, Doc, Christine answered. got a B.A. in classical archaeology and ancient history. Mostly cover Mediterranean cultures. I see, Dr. Sharon said, looking slightly disappointed. Do you have any knowledge of ancient Latin American cultures? Um, I didn't read up on them, but I'm not very well versed on them, Christine replied. Why do you need knowledge of Latin American cultures? We found something that might be connected to something from Earth. Dr. Sharon explained. That's why we need your expertise in archaeology and history. Wait, you meant that we found something here that could be linked to the ancient civilizations on Earth. Christine looked excited as she heard Dr. Sharon's words. Yes, this. Dr. Sharon gestured to the containment unit at the end of the table. We pulled it off the hero's body. What is it? Christine played with the display screen and cameras inside the containment unit, enlarging the image out. Well, it's made out of pure gold as far as we know, Dr. Sharon said. 24 carats, 99.999% pure gold, weighing into 289.4 grams. It appeared to have broken off into pieces, judging from the cracked edges. To have the ability to smelt pure gold is quite hard, especially in a separation of gold and silver is a difficult process, Dr. Sharon continued as she dug out a gold royal coin. These have a purity of 89-90% to gold, five to seven percent silver, and the remainder three to four percent copper and some minor impurities. This is either made by an advanced melting technology, alien tech, or by the gods themselves. Dr. Sharon explained, the natives here surely do not have the technology nor the means to refine such pure gold, and this amulet is several hundred years old by carbon dating. Christine's eyes widened as she listened to Dr. Sharon's words. The engravings on the amulet do look familiar. How are you sure that it's related to us? The computer had analyzed the symbology on the surface and managed to match this. Dr. Sharon showed a printout of the amulet with certain portions of the engraving being highlighted and displayed on the side, with English translated text. Hummingbird of the left. Hummingbird of the left? Christine frowned. Wait, let me get my old books. I should have a couple reference books on Latin American on my tablet. Christine quickly left the lab and headed to her office as she was also a teacher here at the Elementary English and Maths to the students here. Along the way, students bowed and greeted her, but she was in too much of a rush, only giving a quick acknowledgement, and not stopping to chat with the students. Reaching the teacher's room, she grabbed her tablet of a work table and started to scroll rapidly, searching for her old ebooks on history. Found it! She saw the book titles under her history folder, Aztec and Interpretation 1991, and... Born in Blood and Fire, A Concise History of Latin America, 2001. Hurrying back to her tablet, she found Dr. Sharon appeared to be staring into blank space, seemingly similar to how she found her the first time. Doctor! She felt like deja vu to her. Doctor! Christine called out again and reached out to shake her after calling her a few times more without any response. Are you all right? Christine shook Dr. Sharon's shoulder gently, and the doctor seemed startled by a touch. She turned from her seat and asked Christine, ''Yes? Can I help you?'' Somewhere in the forest north of the wreck, Sergeant Mills sat with the rest of his platoon, everyone spotting some kind of injury, watching the men of Bravo Company, Platoon 3, wrap up explosives around the trunks of trees and roots. ''Clear! Fire in the hole!'' A sergeant from Platoon 3 yelled, ''Fire in the hole!'' A series of clumps echoed out through the forest, and Mills felt the pressure wave slamming into his body despite being behind cover and over a hundred meters away. Loud snaps and cracking wood could be heard, and Mills peered over the cover. He saw a small clearing that had appeared. Rays of sunlight flooded in, highlighting the drifting smoke and wood particles in the freshly created clearing. Burn it all, someone yelled, and several magical circles could be seen forming by the marines who had some magic affinity and balls of fire rained down onto the pile of broken tree trunks, roots, fallen leaves, and branches. Damn, this crap is going to take some time to clear. As a thick grey smoke erupted from the burning green wood and leaves, Mills cursed. Well, at least we can have some form of communications and resupply. The lieutenant of Platoon 3 came up to Mills with a happy smile on his face. Well, Sarge, once the clearing is burnt down, we can call in air support and evacuate your boys out of here. Mills nodded, too tired and wounded to criticize the lieutenant for burning the forest, which, most likely, the smoke would kill them off first before their monsters. The lieutenant gave Mills a nod before striding off, yelling at his men. Well, at least in a couple hours we'd be on a nice warm bed. Mills sighed as he leaned back against the tree. He looked around at his gathered men, mentally doing the butcher's list. His last and have two deaths, leaving eleven heavily wounded men— but the search platoon had found another five marines and his platoon scattered all over, three of them poisoned badly by arrows and darts of the goblins, while the remaining two of the marines got turned into furballs, their cute little bleats catching the attention of the search parties. They found three badly mangled bodies of marines killed in action by Forest Troll, and two other MIA, which Lieutenant Karaths was one of them. So total of five KIAs, two IMIAs, and seventeen survivors, All badly wounded. Mills thought to himself and cursed. Freaking forest, freaking trees, and freaking noob tenants. Goblin Sea, the floating wreck. Alza and her classmate stepped into the main deck of the ship and instantly felt the suffocating heat and the humidity of the sea. She blushed as she saw the half-naked sweaty bodies of the crew of humans and elves working at the engines. "'Alza, this is crazy!' one of the boys cried with a sweat started to form all over his body." His white uniform with a dark blue tie and a dark blue pants started to get soaked with sweat, but the humidity. What can we do? He loosened his tie and stared at the uncertainty of his surroundings. Chief Matt climbed down the hatch behind him and said, Can you guys cast a spell to at least blow air out? I... I, I can do that, sir. Petite female student shyly raised her hands. Dressed in a navel-like uniform, the girls wore a ribbon instead of a tie compared to the guys'. She raised both of her hands and the magic circle formed, and she chanted the spell that she wanted. Wait! Chief Matt cried out. What are you doing? Instantly a ball of invisible wind appeared to gather before her glowing blue magic circle. The surrounding hot air got sucked in towards the ball, and the wind she forced to open gunports. The swirling ball of air whipped the skirt of the girl wildly as the air was spinning around her, dropping the surrounding temperature, and the text cheered and clapped. Gail! The girl cried out and shot out a ball of hot air out into the seconds later. It impacted the surface of the sea where a meter-high water splash erupted. The girl teared and rubbed her hands frantically as the heat from the ball had scorched her hands. Quick! Matt saw the girl's hands having been burnt by the heat, and he swiftly grabbed her hands and dunked them into a nearby barrel of seawater. It's gonna hurt, but better than having boils and skin peeling off. The girl cried out in pain as the seawater burnt her scorched hands but she slowly sighed as the water slowly cooled her painful bones. Damn girl! That was stupid. Hey, get a med kit over here. Chief Matt roared at the stunned text, who quickly jumped into action, with several of them running like chickens with their heads cuffed off. Matt sighed and turned to the pale-faced students. Well, I appreciate the help, but next time please tell me what you plan to do first. In an engine room there are a lot of hazards, and we have to take safety precautions before rushing in to do anything. The student nodded, as they were wide-eyed at Matt. Now the temperature just solved temporarily. We need a long-term solution. Those spell formations you drew on the beach, Matt asked. Can you do something similar here? The mist spells, Alza asked. It shouldn't be a problem. We just need to get our materials and we can set them up. Great, Chief Matt grinned, as he took one of the medkits offered by the several techs and scowled at them. Why do you need eight people to grab one medkit? "'Back to your stations.' The rest of the students went up to grab the materials while Matt sprayed the burn lotion over the girl's hands and gently wrapped her hands with bandages. "'All right, don't use your hands for the time being. Once we go back, go see the doc.' Th- 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 "'Thank you, sir.' The girl bowed and hurried off awkwardly. "'Chief,' the text whispered, "'didn't know you were such a softie. She is about the same age as my granddaughter,' Chief Matt sighed. "'A softie, eh?' I see I haven't been around much due to all the paperwork, and now I'm getting too soft into you guys, right? Oh, no, 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 no. The techs all shook their heads, and they quickly disappeared to their stations, not daring to show themselves. Chief Matt shook his head at the antics of his men and grinned, while the students returned armed with sling bags filled with a manner of arcane components. Okay, I think two of those formations should be enough. I want one here and one here. Matt pointed to the two areas next to the engines. Alza nodded and split her group in two. And with the help of the text, they cleared the area roughly two meters by two meters on the deck and started drawing on the wooden planks. And you just make it collect cold air instead of creating mug or mist. Think we can if we can remove the spell for creating water or heating water? Alza said as they started to plan and draw their notebooks for the new formation. It took them roughly thirty minutes, which, by then, the temperature had risen again, making the students sweat and pant as the hot environment. Done! Halza called out as her team had finished the spell formation first followed by the other team. The spell formations glowed and soon Matt felt the air turn cooler, and a thin mist appeared in the form inside the deck, which slowly disappeared away in the sea breeze. Ha! I think I've invented a magical air conditioning system! END OF CHAPTER CHAPTER 177 DECISIONS, DECISIONS UNS Singapore Prison Deck First Lieutenant Tabor of Naval Intelligence whistled a tuneless tone as he strolled deep within the bowels of the UNS Singapore, clutching a briefcase. His slick, polished boots making loud echoes down the dim decks as he entered the restricted area. A checkpoint appeared where five security officers sat behind an armored glass station and Tevar removed his sidearm and dropped it into the opening on the table before he scanned his palms and iris. The armored hatch slid open and Tavar gave a nod to the men inside the guard station before he stepped into the short corridor with the metal detectors and chemical sniffers. The armored hatch closed and the yellow light blinked, followed by a computerized voice. Please wait while the scan for anomalies. A short minute later, the yellow light switched to green, indicating that all scans had been completed. Please proceed and key in your access details. Devar tapped in the login and password, and the computer timestamped and recorded his logged-in access and verified identity before the hatch at the end of the corridor opened. He exited the scanning corridor and walked briskly towards the objective he was here for, as he headed deeper into the prison cells. He stopped before cell number four and keyed in these access codes. The armored door slid open and a six-meter-by-six-meter-transparent cube, internally illuminated, sat in the middle of the cell, directly below the anti-magic spell formation engraved onto the cell floor. The young girl sat on the bed, if only furniture in the prison cell, curled up like a ball, hugging her knees to her chest tightly as her long brushy brown hair covered her face messily like some horror movie actress. She sat there rocking herself as Tevar stood there observing her actions. Tevar walked over to the intercom, set into the row of tables and monitor screens, and hit the send key. Hello? Can you hear me? The girl jerked up like she was shocked by electricity, and she scrambled against the wall of the transparent cell, wrapping a blanket provided around herself and shivering wildly. Go away, you demons! Goblin see." Chief Matt frowned as he looked at the spell formations on his neck, and had a nagging feeling in his head. Elza, he called out from the students who were chanting away happily at the decks. Yes, sir? Elza hopped over the spell formation, her eyes shining with the pride of her work. Can you explain how this works? Chief Matt frowned as he looked at the formation, feeling that he was missing something. Um... The original formation was a three-layer formation. The first, layer, collects heat from the surrounding area. The second layer formed water from the surrounding air. And lastly, the last formation holds together the cold air and water together. Alza explained as she looked at the confusion at Chief Matt's worried face. The cold air touches the warm air and fog is formed. For this formation, we just removed the second layer and some parts of the third layer, she explained. The heated air will be absorbed where the cold air will be formed above the formation, thus cooling the engines. Wait, if you remove the water creation portion, where does all the heat collector go? Chief Matt looked worriedly at her. The heat? Oh! Alsa looked up in horror. The men They will gather all the heat! Shut the spell formations down now! Chief Matt yelled, now! The students looked at Chief Matt in confusion, but luckily Alza jolted awake, and she quickly followed Chief Matt's instructions, quickly stopped the spell formations. She knelt before the spell formations and pressed both palms in a formation, channeling her magic into the spell, and cutting her magic conduits from the mana stones powering the formation. The glow of the spell formation faded and the heat slowly returned, but the two mana stones used to power the spell formation began to glow with a red-hot manner. As the air shimmering over it. Don't touch that, Chief Matt yelled. Go and grab some thermal insulation gloves and laser thermometer. He ordered one of the techs who ran off, fighting his order. Thank God we shut it down in time. Chief Matt gave a sigh of relief. If the mana stones overheat, it will explode. While the forces of the explosion isn't very strong, it'll still be deadly in a half enclosed area. During the initial tests and experiments with mana stones, they had heated one of them up till it blew up, destroying cameras and testing equipment with a TNT force of 5 kilograms for a single 200-gram piece of stone. But the temperatures required for them to go boom was over 750 degrees Celsius. Alright, I think we need to rethink on this one. The spell formations work, but we need some way to call cool the mana stones, Chief Matt said as he took the laser thermometer from the returned deck. Wow. It reached almost 200 degrees Celsius in like 20 minutes of operation. Hey, Chief, the timber is burnt black. The tank wore gloves and picked up the burning hot stone. What should we do with this? See if there's a bucket in sand and seawater, Chief replied. Ah, um, I think we can jerry-rig it into some sort of steam engine for ships. It can cool the engines and at the same time create steam, which it can then turn to use generate electricity for the ship, Chief muttered to himself excitedly. Oh, my God! Near infinite power! But the stones have a limited power and have to be replaced. Am, um. Okay, boys, we're going to come up with a way to cool the manor stones, Chief Matt roared to his clue. Best ideas gets one week off. Oh! The techs all yelled and cheered in excitement as they started discussing amongst themselves ways of cooling the manor stones, leaving the students bewildered. UNS Singapore Prison Deck Liz Regnar was wrapped in a blanket tightly around her thin frame. She peered out wildly at the mirrored walls, only seeing her hundreds of her own frightened figure on the bed and all four sides of the walls. The harsh white lights made her crazy, as it was forever brightly lit and she lost all track of time. Not knowing when was the day or night alone in this mirrored cell, the only way that she could track time was by meals given to her twice a day. Now a godlike voice spoke to her from the ceiling, breaking her rigid, fragile mental state. "'Hello? Can you hear me?' "'No!' Liz yelled as she tried to bury herself deeper into the blankets. "'It's a voice in my head!' "'What is your name?' the voice spoke again. "'Tell me your name!' "'I don't know anything. Go away!' Liz yelled again. "'It's just a bad dream.' "'This is not a dream. You know it isn't. Now tell me your name.' "'It's not a dream!' Liz's eyes went wide in terror. No! This is heaven or hell? Where am I? She had tried to gather up her magic, but failed every time. And this time it was the same, making her feel small and useless, just like a normal person. Answer the question. The light suddenly went out, turning the cell pitch back, and Liz screamed in terror. Answer the question. She's spotlight shone directly down on her as she rolled a fetal position, crying, "'Elizabeth Ragnar!' she sobbed. "'Elizabeth Ragnar, why are you with the hero Dante? "'I I, I heard that he was recruiting party members,' Liz replied. "'I signed up and was chosen. "'Who else was in the party with the hero?' "'Stab uh, uh, and Evelyn!' Lieutenant Tavar leaned back on the console as he replayed the video of his interrogation of the girl mage. "'Hmm,' He made some notes on his tablet and reviewed all the data on both the prisoners and felt something was wrong and didn't tally. Liz the girl mage had said that the hero Dante came here to subjugate the rebels by orders of the emperor and were after to claim or one for kidnapping kids, while Evelyn the archer said the hero was hired by the adventurous girl to come and investigate Tooth Mountain Pass for traces of the rebels. So who is telling the truth? He put both of his booted feet up and observed the shaking, curled-up body of the girl in the cell. Liz seemed too scared out of her wits to be lying, or could both of them be telling the truth? He played back the video recording he had of Evelyn and frowned. As he compared both girls' reactions, Evelyn seemed more calm than Liz despite the fear and confusion she has. The way the prisoners were treated, with a constant harsh white light, a mirrored cell, isolation, sleep deprivation, were all designed to disorientate and confuse the mental states of the prisoners, making it easier for interrogation without the use of violence. Liz had completely broken down, while Evelyn seemed more uh, detached and confused, which was rather puzzling to Tavar, who thought that if someone were to hold out longer, it would be Liz the mage, as mages are supposed to have stronger willpower. According to Magister Thorne. He looked at the whimpering girl and felt nothing, to be honest. He was scouted straight into the naval intelligence once he graduated from OCS on Earth. He was an orphan, growing up in one of the Israel government run orphanages before the war came. And the law stated that all males of a certain age group were required to serve the human race against the invaders. And also, every one of age, and both male and female, in the orphanages was sent off to the military. Tavar fared well in officer cadet school, placing within the top 20 of his class. His instructors commented that he was strong with languages including foreign cultures and has the ability to absorb a wide array of information and great memory. Also, it helped that he had no family or ties to anyone. He checked the medical reports with Dr. Sharon, going through their medical history, and found something about Evelyn appearing to be in a constant confused state once she regained consciousness. Dr. Sharon wrote that it might be due to the trank shot she'd given her over a long period of time, causing her brain to suffer some minor amnesia. Tevar watched the replay of the interrogation of the Evelyn girl, watching her gestures and micro-expressions. One said the hero is recruited by the Empire, the other said it was the adventurous Guild. So let's say that they both tell the truth. Does that mean that the adventurous Guild are under the control of the Empire? If that's the case, it would actually not be a surprise if I am in charge of an intelligence network for a nation or an empire, an adventurous guild where people of all types and races gather for work. It would be the best place to gather information, not to mention, even issuing secret missions to the unknown adventurers to do dirty jobs under the guise of guild would be easy too. Daval thought to himself, crap, there is at least one branch for the Adventurous Guild in every major town and city in the continent even the isles have branches there. He frowned, tapping the console. What should you do about the two girls now that it was sort of had his answer? The girl mage has magic power, which will greatly help boost our magic capabilities, even if she does not go in the front line and just serves as a teacher. As for the archer girl, unless she works as a hunter or trains the marines in Woodcraft, there wasn't much that she could do to contribute to the colony. But they were both at risk to try and recruit them, or is it better to give them both the bullet in the head and unmarked graves? What should I recommend to the captain? Decisions, decisions. End of chapter Chapter 178 Doctor Strange The colony, Academy of Science and Magic, Christine gently knocked on the door of Dr. Sharon's lab in the academy and gingerly pushed the door open. She saw the doctor leaning over the glass containment unit, staring at the artifact without moving. Christine knocked harder on the door and called out, "'Doc!' She did not remember the doc being so, um, strange. She briefly remembered that doc was quite famous for being geeky, always playing computer games during office hours in the med bay with her patients. "'Oh, Christine, you're here!' Dr. Sharon replied without turning, for some strange reason. She could feel the presence and identity of the person who came in without seeing who it was. Classes for the day have ended, so I popped by to see if there was anything I could help with. Christine replied timidly, as she looked at the back of Dr. Sharon. Thank you. Dr. Sharon finally took a rise off the broken amulet and sat down on the chair. I have been reading up on the god, the hummingbird of the left... Seems like it's referring to the Aztec god of war, sun, and human sacrifice, Pochli. She pronounced the name Los Ponchli. We might have a misconception here as the Aztec gods need deadly sacrifices, most likely due to the mainstream movies and show that mold our perception of the Aztecs as crazed worshippers of blood and death, Dr. Sharon said. So far, the two books you shared with me shows another side of the story that we know of. But... What do we know the most of the carvings of the amulet on 84% similar to the Aztec pictograms? Dr. Sharon added. The question now is, why is an ancient Earth civilization doing in a planet millions of light years away? That is something that I am not understanding too, Christine replied carefully. But so far we only have one incomplete piece of evidence. We need to find out more before we can come up with a concrete theory. If not, we'll just be guesswork, we... Dr. Sharon appeared to tilt her head to the side as she was trying to listen to something. She put her hand up to stop Christine's sentence as she narrowed her eyes. Doctor, Christine looked with concern to Sharon. Wait. Dr. Sharon was trying to hear the voices in her head, but the banging of the drums muffled the words. She stood up and walked back to the containment unit and rested her forehead against the sapphire glass, and the words became clearer. Emaner Elderon What does that mean? doctor Sharon whispered into a voice in her head. Emma Venois. Dr. Sharon, Christine looked at the strange manner the doctor was displaying. What do you mean by that? Oh, it's nothing, doctor Sharon straightened up. Just voices in my head, you know. Um okay. Christine frowned as she said the concerned voice. Doc, I think you need to take a break from work. I think you're pushing yourself too much. Yesterday you too unfocused that you had forgotten what we talked about. "'Haze,' Dr. Sharon sighed. "'I want to, but there are so many things going on. I have a hospital to handle, not to mention any critical cases, researchers to do, voices in my head, and now this.' "'That is why you should take a couple days off,' Christine replied. "'You are not an AI drone. Even drones will break down without a proper downtime. And you are so stressed and tired that you're even hearing voices in your head.' Christine stood up and grabbed Dr. Sharon's shoulder and pulled her off the stool and out of the lab. Take a rest and a day off, go back and get some proper sleep, or play some games. Shoo! And like a mother hen, she shooed Dr. Sharon out of the lab and followed her down to the communal bus stop, where she ensured that she left the campus with Christine satisfied. Remember, no work. She called after a confused Dr. Sharon on board the bus. Goblin C, the floating wreck. We put all the spell formation back with a container here and pipes installed, one of the techs was bending over and with a piece drawn on the table, we can use the heat released by the transfer spell and boil the water in the container. Steam pressure will then build up and be collected and channeled into the turbines here, turning it and generating electricity. This way, we can ensure that the mana stones don't reach critical mass. The techs proudly showed off their collective work. We harness the heat given off by the engines and transfer it to the heat to boil water thus creating steam power to the turbines, which turn gives us electricity and also cold air. But this contraption only works in an area where there's plenty of waste heat. If not, it doesn't really work in any other environment, the tech was doing a presentation explained. So this is just like a thermoelectric steam generator, Chief Matt said while folding his arms over his chest. Some sort of Seebeck generator? Yes, we use the Seebeck effect for as the concept. The Tex replied carefully, wondering if the chief would be happy with their work. But in this case here, yeah, since we do not have a turbine or generator, we can just use the transferred heat to boil water to get rid of the heat energy in the pipes acts as a funnel for the steam to escape. What do you think? Chief Matt turned and looked at the quiet girl beside him. Think you can edit some of the spell formation again? Um... Alza filed one of her arms under her chest while the other tapping the side of her head. I think so... We just have to ensure that the transfer spell so is moving the heat in a set up correctly. If not, the heat will just not be able to boil the water in the container. We might need to run a few trials to ensure it's correct, Alsa said. No problem, Matt replied. The paddle wheels so far were working splendidly, giving them the constant speed of three knots, as they did not want to overweigh the engines. Boys, you'll measure and help keep everything perfect. Hi, Chief, the crew roared out happily, glad that the design worked. Everyone here gets a week off when we return. Good work, Chief grinned. But only if we can complete our makeshift sea steam generator. Now, let's get to work. Aye, aye, Chief. The crew quickly grabbed and dragged a stunned student down the warm decks below, but they started to work the spell formation again, while the crews just jerry-rigged makeshift containers and pipes. The Colony Dr. Sharon rested her head against the window of the new model bus. The original electronic-motored half-tracks that used to be running the bus routes were replaced by the Dragonite-powered aero-engined buses. An exposed radiator poked out of the bonnet of the bus while the smaller propeller fan blew against the engines as it roared and clanked. The bus was far noisier than the electric half-tracks, which made virtually no sounds except for the harsh scrapes of the metal tracks. The wheels of the bus were made out of the bodies of dried black slime, and sounds of something sticking against the paved road would be constantly heard. Dr. Sharon sighed, missing earth and the convenience of modern technology. The air in the bus was warm, despite the windows being rolled down. There were a few other passengers on board, but they looked absolutely fascinated by the moving scenery and the bus was bothered by all the minor details. The voice in her head was surprisingly quiet, as if it was asleep, but Dr. Sharon had a nagging suspicion that each time she was close to her modern technology stuff, the voices in her head appeared to quieten down a lot. If she was with the stuff from this world, it chatted nonstop. And when she was closer to the magical amulet, the strength and the volume of the voices in her head got louder, clearer, and even comms accompanied with tribal drums. What the hell was going on... She had spoken with Magister Thorne roughly about bodies or souls taken over by another entity, but Thorne had no idea of such topics, for he was a well-versed in spirit magic, nor does he have any books or scrolls with the knowledge of them. Even when she tried to repeat the words she heard to Thorne, he couldn't identify nor understand them, leading to her keeping quiet about the whole ordeal. Maybe Christine was right. She does need to take a break and just rest. And catch up with the games that she had been neglecting for weeks. She smiled to herself happily, thinking of what games to play later—RPGs, FPSs, or city building some. Goblin Sea Floating Wreck Chief Matt, we present you the Sea Back Steam Engine Mark One. The Tex grinned happily at the incitement, despite the hot and sweaty environment. Even the students were grinning wildly, having been infected by the enthusiasm and energy. All right, people, calm down. Chief Matt roared over the excited voices. Let's test it out. Alson nodded and one of her classmates who knelt down and injected his magic into the formation. A couple of the techs started to pour buckets of seawater into the large metal box container, which used to store some equipment. It was suspended over the wooden table with a large hole removed from the tabletop, and once it was filled, they closed the lid and secured it a lid with a heavy wooden plank. A couple of hoses recycled from the water pumps were attached to the sides of the makeshift water tank. As the spell formation started to glow and the manna stones lit up, the air started to cool and the men jeered as they watched with barely concealed glee in their eyes. Bring us up to half speed, Chief Matt ordered. The techs in charge of the engines nodded and engaged the gears, switching gears and increasing the speed of the paddle wheels. The sounds of the churning water grew louder and the ship sprawled forward riding the waves as the paddle wheels sped up. Five knots and holding, someone yelled down from the hatch. Let's run it, Chief Matt ordered as they watched the engines and the spell formations. Check the engine and stone temperatures. Engines holding at 111.7 degrees Celsius but dropping. The tech with the laser thermometer cried. Stones looking at around 89.4 degrees and climbing fast. 95.2, 99.6, 103.1, 107.5. Keep observing, Chief Matt ordered. What's the temperature of the water tank? Um, it looks like it's 73 degrees and climbing. One of the techs reached in jerry-rigged thermometer recycled from the engine for a water pump. Manistone's temperature is holding at 137 to 138 degrees, the tech reported. Engine's temperatures are holding at 103 degrees. Good, Chief grinned. Now time to do an endurance test. Run the engines at half speed for an hour. I want five-minute checks on the temperatures for both the engines and the stones. Clear? Aye, chief. The colony, residential area. Dr. Sharon flopped down on a chair and powered up a computer on a desk in an assigned apartment. It had a living room and three bedrooms and a kitchenette. One of the rooms she converted into a work area. One was a guest and storage room and the master bedroom she used for herself. Most of the furniture was simple fabricated pieces, with few locally wood-made pieces like the dining table set. She swept open the curtains and opened up the windows, letting the fresh air and natural light. She was not returned to the apartment for the past few days, sleeping either on her office, couch, or the hospital beds. Finally, time for some games! She grinned and booted up the games menu. Mana Jiala. Ugh. End. Of Chapter chapter 179 Welcome to the Concrete Jungle UNS Singapore, Captain's Quarters Here are the full detailed reports of the interrogation of the two prisoners, Lieutenant Tevar handed over the two files to Blake's desk after he finished summarizing the details with the captain in his office, with the XO in attendance. Sir, the effects of the interrogation might cause some side effects to the prisoners, well, I personally think that the mage will be more useful in boosting our magical sector. The archer could also help with other fields like hunting, tracking, forestry, and woodcraft, Tabor said. The chances of recruiting either one of them, frankly, aren't very high. In fact, I think there might even be some negative backlash. It is also not advisable to release them should they reject our offers of recruitment, Tavor continued. While we have to take note that we did kill the hero after all, and they might have emotional attachments to the hero. Meaning, Blake raised an inquisitive eyebrow, revenge or hatred to our cause, Tavor replied simply, they might have taken things to another level, which will implicate our operations and survival. Your suggestions? Blake leaned back in his chair as he waited for Tavor to reply. Execute them, Tavor replied coldly, saves us the trouble in the future cold-blooded murder, Commander Sport snorted. Where are our morals if we take that path? Are we degrading ourselves to murderers and cutthroats? Tavon gave a shrug. It is the best case scenario for us. With the after-effects of the interrogation, we do not even know if their mental states will be like. Even if we do not execute them, Tevor continued, are we just going to release them back into the nearest town? If yes, what if they leaked out our information on us? Did you not ensure that there was no information leaked to them, and they were just totally isolated in the cells? Port narrowed his eyes as he refuted Table's point. Yes, but they have battled with the hundred and first ATI, the Eagle Company. Table replied. They have some inkling to our combat capabilities, which, if they were taken in by any imperial agent, they can disclose quite a bit of information regarding our weapons. But our weapons have already been exposed to the hundred thousands of imperial soldiers already. Ford argued. What difference does this make? A lot, sir. Tevar turned to look at Ford. For one, the girl mage is well versed in magic, almost at the level of Magister Thorn, or even stronger in terms of combat magic. She fundamentally understands our weapons are either magic artifacts or non-magical constructs. Next, should they reappear back in any town or city, they can incite negative feelings towards us, which will be bad in the long run, should we attempt to form any contacts with anyone. Davo said. They can also be used as propaganda tools against us by the Empire for killing the hero. This will, of course, be a demerit to us, should we want to cause internal strife within the Empire. Lastly, I refer to the main reason for executing them again, Davo said. Should they decide to take revenge on us, it'll only add more on our plate, which, frankly, is quite full. I understand, Lieutenant, Blake gave out a long sigh. Killing them gives us bad karma. Not killing them might lead to having troubles in the future, while recruiting them, we might be rearing poisonous vipers in our house. Ford, thoughts? Blake asked the XO. Sir, Lieutenant Tavar gave us good points regarding them, but to condone an execution of prisoners goes against our code of law. Ford frowned. There is no concrete justification to kill them. As Tavar has interrogated them, both of them have only joined the hero's party for a year or so, and neither of them believes that they are on the side of evil there is a high chance that they were duped by the Adventurer's Guild if the Guild is actually secretly controlled or is working with the Empire. Tabor had also reported his suspicions on the origins of the Adventurer's Guild, stating that they might be a part of the Empire or as a sided with the Empire. If that is the case, thousands of Adventurers were unknowingly working for the Empire's agendas, which makes them all victims of fraud, Vord said. How can we just execute two girls duped into working for the Empire unknowingly on the charges of becoming future problems, which might not even happen? I see. Blake rubbed his glabula, as he thought how troublesome this issue turned out to be. We hold them for a period first. Let's give them the carrot first and see how it goes from there onwards. Tevar, put your best man over watching the two of them, Blake said. Well, Commander Ford has his points, you have yours too, and I believe it is better to be safe than sorry. Watch them carefully, any signs of aggression, and you are authorized to use deadly force. But I do not want to see you taunting and forcing their hand. Is that understood? Yes, sir, Tabor said. Dismissed, Blake said, satisfied with Tabor's work. Good job, by the way. After Tabor left the office, Ford frowned and said, Sir, isn't that a bit too heavy-handed? Blake raised a hand, stopping Ford from continuing. If we can reduce the number of deaths in the future by cutting off a root now, why not? But sir, Ford argued, have we fallen so low? It's not a matter of falling so low or about laws and codes of conduct, Blake replied as if he stared at Ford with steel eyes. We got pushed around too much and it's about time we do something about it. I understand, sir, Ford gave in, but we will need to hold on to our morals or we will become like them, cold blooded barbarians and killers. Welcome to the Navy, Hexer. The Colony Kaga Whitetail glued her face against the super-clear glass windows, sans the oily prints of her palms and face. She stared wide-eyed at the massive walls, which seemed to be made out of a single piece of stone, like a mountain. The bush that she was carried in a batch of the freed slaves as they transported to the city after the quarantine period is over, and for the first time, Kaga saw the capital of the so-called rebels and demon worshippers. The mountain-like walls spread as far as the eye could see, while the height was so great that she had to crane her neck all the way up to see the tops of the entered tunnel-like entrances. The strange and magical white lights that lit up the interior of the tunnel entrance were what appeared to be simple red and white stripped barrier blocked the way into the city. She stared curiously outside of the bus intently, seeing strange stripes and black and yellow colored brands unlining the floors, while guards with smart-looking black uniforms entered the bus and did a quick check before they disembarked. The red and white striped barrier that then raised and the bus waved through. The driver drove the bus forward, heading towards the bright light at the end of the tunnel, and Kagar looked shocked as they came out at the walls and saw a sprawling city with structures that boggled her mind. In the beast city she lived in, the buildings cannot be taller than the Princess's tower, which was already an impressive five stories tall. The buildings and stone towers she saw here, were shaped like rectangular blocks with boxy shapes jutting out at intervals, while some of the walls were made out of glass totally. She knew that building a tower more than three stories high takes a lot of work and craftsmanship, not to mention the cost, as the stronger and better materials is required for the foundations and sometimes magic is used to strengthen the whole building. What she saw here were like dozens and dozens of buildings over five or even ten stories tall. How did they do that? The exit to the tunnel was on top of a slope, allowing Kagao and the people in the bus to ogle at the city, and the area around the walls were large fields growing a variety of crops. There were even herds of buffaloes and giant pico-pico birds mingling around the grasslands. As they traveled towards the city, there was another curtain wall, but smaller and shorter, likely only three stories tall, surrounding the area providing the internal line of defense should the main walls be breached which Gagar highly doubted it was possible to do so. In the far distance, Kagar noticed a massive strange-looking grey-white structure glittering in the sun that appeared to be built into the side of the mountain range. Welcome to the colony, as the locals called the city. The voice suddenly was heard coming from somewhere in the bus. The people, including Kagar, were not as frightened as the first time they heard a voice coming from a black box in the camp. You have just passed the main walls of the city and are now within the agricultural district. This is just a small part of the city's farms. The others are all spread out over the northeastern sector. Next, we are coming up to the inner defensive wall. These walls provide an internal line of defense and also includes bomb raid shelters for citizens to take shelter should there be an attack on the city. There is also bomb shelters located in the city for everyone to take shelter. The strange female voice cheerfully said, Your personal orientation officer will guide you along with more information should you wish to inquire. The city is divided into six main districts, which are further divided into sub-districts. You have just seen the agricultural district, which has four sub-districts, namely north, south, east, and west. We have a commercial district which is divided into north and south, and an industrial district which all the factories and workshops are located you are now entering the residential district too. There are three residential districts from one to three, each capable of housing up to six thousand people. We are now heading towards the central business district located at the very center of the city to do the processing of the start of your new life here with us. The people in the bus stared at the neat and tidy streets where magic wagons like the bus were on the past them and other magic wagons carried huge loads of goods on their backs drove along the streets. The bus stopped at the road before the strange red rune hanging in the pole. Kaga realized that the red runes must be mean stop, and she saw the other wagons speeding off across them and similar runes hang over the bend pole were showing green glow. How amazing, Kagar thought, as she looked at the orderly way the wagons moved and the people on the streets that crossed the road. The roadside stalls and buildings looked vibrant and colourful. There was no rubbish on the streets, no beggars sitting around. Everyone was dressed in colourful clothing and they looked fat and happy. To your right, you will be able to see the Castle of Iron. That's where the Captain Blake, Lord Governor General of the city lives. We are now entering the Central Business District. Up ahead you'll see City Hall, where your identity card, work and living permits will be issued to you. The grand-looking stone grey building sat at the centre of the massive square that had a beautiful water fountain in the middle where several people sat with their benches relaxing and having lunch. The bus followed the roundabout and stopped before the steps of the city hall and the door slid open with a loud hissing sound. Thank you and I hope that you enjoy the new life here. Have a nice day. End of chapter Chapter 180 My Soul THE COLONY CITY HALL Kagar stepped from the red bus and looked around in wonder. Stone buildings towered over the huge plaza, with a lone fountain in the middle, large enough to have more than a thousand people gather. People from Grudenline, please gather here. A girl's voice could be heard calling over the gawks and voices in awe of the crowd. Kagar turned and saw a girl dressed in long-sleeved white blouse and a red ribbon underneath, a dark blue vest and a blue skirt, with a blue side hat, and a ginger head tied in a short ponytail. She waved a smaller triangular red flag on a stick, calling for people of Group 9 in common tongue. Hagar remembered she when the people in the same bus were from Group 9, and she walked over to join the group gathering before the girl. Bullia of 10th Street Orphanage, from the Forledge, also known as Biddy the Kid, stood on a couple flights of steps bearing a wide smile that started to make her jaw cramp. She waved her little red flag and called out again in common, ''Please gather here, people from Group Nine. Please.'' Finally, some people finished gawking around and started to gather before her. She had to stand on the steps to be able to look over their heads at the small crowd. ''I need to count the number of people before I bring you in. Please stay together and do not wander off.'' Billy sighed inwardly as half of the people were either ignoring her or just awed by the surroundings she resisted the urge to scratch her stockings of her legs and itched with an unaccustomed new uniform that she was wearing. So far, she started this job as an administrative assistant for almost two five-day weeks while studying English lessons during the evening. Luckily, her seniors were kind and helpful to her, but she was just not used to being feminine again after fighting for scraps for so long in the gutters. "'People, please line up,' she called out again and again, her temper starting to ride." "'Hey!' Billy called out and standed in more, a vein popping in her head. Group "'Line line up properly!' She yelled loudly and the crowd who looked shocked at a little girl shouting at them before they obediently lined up before her. "'A neat cut heads. Can you all listen to instructions?' The group of people blushed in embarrassment as a passerby giggled and laughed at the scene of a little girl holding a tiny flag and scolding a bunch of grown-ups. "'Belly!' Another girl, dressed in the same manner, panted as she ran down the steps. "'Sorry, there's a meeting that dragged on for longer than I expected. I—' The girl paused as she saw the group and chastened-looking newcomers all obediently lined up. "'You managed to control, um, the crowd all by yourself.' "'Roxy,' Billy's face turned sheepish. (laughs) "'I just accidentally raised my my voice a bit.' (laughs) "'Roxy laughed and patted Billy's head. "'Well, good work. Let's get them processed, then.' Okay, I counted, everyone's here, but he smiled, quite liking the feeling of warmth from Roxy. Group nine, follow us, and please do not wander off. She gave a glare at the good measure, and the group got together with Roxy at the rear, led the whole group of newcomers up the stairs of City Hall. Kagan gave a small smile as she suddenly recalled why the little girl looks over Mania. It was the wounded child that she'd helped carry during the run in the forest. She must have recovered and was now working here. Maybe she should find some time to catch up with her later. Passing by a massive round stone columns, they entered the massive double wooden doors of the city hall and saw a large bustling hall with several doors that led somewhere. A row of counters with the same blue uniforms and two guides were wearing sat behind the tables and were serving the people seated on chairs. A large strange magical board hung over the counters while periodically changing rooms with a chime and someone, seated on the rows and chairs laid out inside of the hall, would then walk up to the empty counter. Hagar was then given a square chit, with some strange runes drawn onto it, and looked up as Billy explained. This is a Q number, each of you are given one, Billy turned and pointed to the huge magical board hung on the counters. When your turn comes, a matching number will soon be on that board. As long as your cue number matches with that, head towards the correct counter." If you do not understand the numbers or runes, just match them, Billy continued to explain. On each counter has a number too. Board will show you which counter to go to. Remember, just match your queue number with the board and watch the counter number shown on the head of the counter. You can seat there while waiting for your number to be called. Billy said and pointed to the row of chairs on the side. If there is anything you are not sure of, please feel free to ask. But he said and was almost immediately bombarded with questions, and she almost instantly regretted. What magic is this? What are we doing here? Where is the toilet? I'm hungry. Where do we sleep? Kagar found an occupied chair and sat down, observing each had everything in the hall. Suddenly she saw a group of short-eared people, and she tensed up slightly remembering the two strange short ears that appeared in the camp and tried to capture her soul, but she slowly relaxed again as the short ears did not appear to be after her and her people around them, making her question if the rumors of demons are true. She watched the short ears carefully observing their every move and manners, feeling like they were very similar to the long ears, making her fluffy ears twitch. "'Who built all of these?' Could it be the demons? If so, they must possess very powerful elemental magics to raise stone walls and buildings. Time passed, unnoticed as Kagar was concentrating on observing all of her surroundings, seeing new things and wonders while the board chimed. And Kagar saw the same exact ruins with her Q-number and another rune next to them. She quickly recognized the rune to one of the counters bearing the same rune. Then she walked up nervously and stood before, cheerfully-looking middle-aged lady. ''Oh my, a beast! Man, Take a seat, near. She spoke in common. Kagar gingerly sat down, her tail and long ears erect as she nervously stared at the uniformed lady. ''Don't be nervous. You are here to fill in some information, and we'll assign you a place and offer you a job and education courses. There will also be an orientation for you to attend, so you get to know the city better.'' The matronly lady smiled, but in Kagar it's slightly at ease. "'Now, please put your hand here yeah, on the stone," the matronly wool lady said. "'What is your name, dear?' c c whitetail she replied as she stared at the stone with her right hand on it. The stone gave up a warm feeling and glowed slightly, while the lady nodded as she appeared to use her fingers to press something rapidly on the table, giving off a tapping sound. "'Hm? Age? Nineteen, you say? Where were you born? Parents? Siblings? Previous occupation?' The questions kept coming, as in what did you used to do before? Um, I was the guardian priestess of the City of Beasts. Gagar truly spoke out, knowing that she couldn't lie with the true stone in her hand. Oh my, you're the guardian priestess. The matronly lady's eyes widened as she rubbed her forehead. This is above my pay grade. Please hold on. The administrator lady got up and walked to a table at the back and picked up some strange-looking handle that had some curdy strings linked to it and seemed to press the surface of the strange object. Kaga's eyes widened as her ears and tail stood straight as her heightened hearing clearly heard the lady speaking to someone on it. What demonic sorcery is that? She couldn't understand what she was talking about as they seemed to be speaking in another language that she recognized to be like what the people were saying that they needed to learn. Less than a turn of the glass and the lady returned and smiled. So sorry, dear, to keep you waiting, but I informed the higher-ups about your situation and they'll be here to talk to you, but let's continue registering you first in the system. Hagar looked suspiciously at her and wondered how she should make a run for it. Dear, don't be so nervous now. What skills do you have? Magic? Combat? Knowledge? I'm skilled in the use of spirit magic. I should be considered a sixth circle mage by your standards, Hagar replied. I'm also well versed in divination and protection formations. She also listed off several fields that thought she had decided. Wow, a six-circle mage at your age. The lady was clearly impressed. Good, good. We need more people of your caliber. She appeared to ramp the table lightly, producing more of those tapping sounds, and she looked up to the side with something, driving the level of curiosity to the car higher and higher, making the ears twitch madly. Um... If if you do, don't mind, Kagar couldn't stand not knowing what the lady was doing. What are you doing, tapping on the table? Oh, <laughs> the lady laughed and gestured Kagar to lean over the counter. You are a curious one, aren't you? She showed Kagar the piece of flat black rectangular object with tiny squares laid out in rows on the surface, with runes drawn on each square. This is a keyboard. We press the keys to type the words that we want into the computer. Uh, Then she explained as she showed Kagar the glowing display on the side filled with the most strange runes. She held the strange black oval object and clicking sound could be heard and Kagar saw something glowing on the screen and the lady demonstrated by tapping on the keyboard and the runes appeared like magic on the screen. Kagar's ears and tail twitched madly as she looked at the way the computer worked and resisted the urge to ask more. The lady laughed at her expression and kindly said, Don't worry, you'll learn more when you start attending classes. Now, look here. The lady pointed to the boxy object with the round shiny circle in the middle. Smile. Hagar gave an awkward smile, looking directly at the strange object, wondering what it was and suddenly she remembered seeing something very similar to it. But it was smaller compared to those two weird short ears were holding. But could it be the same? It can capture your soul. A click sounded and the lady giggled. My dear, you look so stiff. Now I need your fingerprint and a drop of your blood into the truth stone, and we will mostly be done. What is that thing? Kagar asked, pointing to the camera. Does it capture your soul? Ha <laughs> ha Where did you hear that from, my dear? The lady giggled. You're so cute. Kagar blushed as if it was the first time someone called it cute. But but <laughs> don't worry, it just takes your photo. The lady smiled and took her hand gently and pressed it against the piece of silvery looking pad. Don't move your fingers yet. Okay, the other fingers. Next she took one of Kagar's fingers and placed it on the truth stone, where it was a tiny pick of pain and a blood drop landed on the surface of the stone, making it glow. Ow! What did you do? I need a drop of your blood to register with the truth stone, the lady replied. There was a strange whining noise and the lady smiled. And we're done. She handed over a small stack of papers and a small rectangular card. Here are some brochures for you to read on, and this is your identity card. Don't lose it. There is a fine if you do. Kagar looked down at the card and gasped in shock at the perfect-looking image of herself was posted on it. My soul! End of chapter. And that, my friends, concludes this video. I hope that you enjoyed. If you did, please consider supporting the author from the link down below. Otherwise, if you wish to support this channel, there are numerous ways to do so, like liking, subscribing, and possibly even becoming a patron. Otherwise, the easiest way would be to share. And until the next video, I hope that you all have a good one, and I'll see you then. Cheers.